You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triath. Well, hey there, all you tri freaks and geeks. And welcome to another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where I give you tons of triathlon tips and tricks and then also a little bit of Zen thrown in to try to help you keep your sanity in the world's most complicated sport. All right, we need to get rolling because we have a bunch of stuff to cover this show. We have uh, some triathlon news and also we have a fantastic interview with Bruckner Chase who is an incredible open water swimmer and also, I don't know when the last time he's done a triathlon per se, but he's done tons and tons of uh, triathlons and ultra running. He's kind of a big deal. So it's really cool having him on the show. And uh, we talk about uh, mindfulness a little bit towards the end of, of our interview, which is pretty cool. And then also I went to a wedding in Salem, Massachusetts, the uh, witch hunting capital of the universe, it seems like. And that was really cool. I'll cover that a little bit. And then also I give you some tips on how to win with Zen. It is really cool stuff. We'll do that after the Bruckner Chase interview. And also uh, cards and letters, emails from people about all kinds of stuff with some tips on some training, especially fueling mixed in, and then I take you with me on my training log, where I log between 19 and 22 hours per week for two weeks, and I talk about fueling and pacing, I blow up, I dig myself into a hole, I come out of it, all that cool stuff, all in one great episode. So let's go ahead and get started with the triathlon news, here we go. All right, first off, Kona is coming up, the World Championships for Ironman in Kona, Hawaii on October 10th. I imagine it'll be broadcast live. And also there is a cool report that Thorsten Rad writes up every year for the race. And uh, I'm actually quoted in it again this year where I give my picks for who's going to be top three male, female, and also the dark horses. And my write-up is really good. And also I should say that I picked Miranda Carfrey as a dark horse, not first. So you definitely need to go check this out. It's available for download as a PDF. It's 157 pages, I think. It's crazy, but you want this thing in your hand while you are watching the race. And big props to Thorsten. Uh, you can find out more about him at tryrating.com. And Rad is spelled R-A-D-D-E. And he's German, so he is meticulous. <laughs> and the research is fantastic. It's a really entertaining read. And yeah, there's... Uh, a whole half a page in there from Zentri on my picks, and um, I'm right below either Lava or Triathlete Magazine, and above I Am Talk, and where he placed me in the uh, in the review. So that's pretty cool. All right, uh, Ironman Chattanooga just the other day was won uh, by the second closest margin ever in Ironman history. Uh, there was a one, I think in 1990, that was uh, won by one second. Well, this one was won by two seconds in the men's race. Uh, a guy comes running across, and it is a dead sprint <laughs> at Ironman pace. Ironman Pro 
uh, end of marathon sprinting, which is, uh, you know, they're doing the best they can. And then uh, two seconds later, second place comes across, collapses on the finish line. Uh, third place comes across eight seconds later, and they bump heads into each other as they both collapse on the ground. And then what I thought was funny is if you watch the video, and the video is all over the internet, it's Ironman Chattanooga uh, race finish 2015. If you Google that, you'll find it. The uh, at Within you know, 10, 15 seconds, they all manage to uh, reach over and stop their Garmin watches or whatever they're using. <laughs> I thought they're such triathletes, such type A people, you know, they could be almost dying, but they got to make sure that they log their workout. And let's see, we had uh, Ironman Tahoe, which was a non-pro race, and it happened a couple of weeks ago, but it would seem like you'd almost never know it because they got almost no coverage whatsoever in the triathlon rags and uh, websites and Twitter. And that's no, uh, no slight against the people that actually did it. But I'm noticing this, these races, uh, I think, was it Lake Placid? Uh, these races where uh, Ironman has decided to cut pros out, man, they really shot themselves in the foot because they're getting no publicity because people don't talk about them as much. And I noticed you know, they had to cancel uh, Ironman Tahoe after a few years. They said, uh, you know what, we're not going to do it anymore. Um, not enough signups after the other two races. But if you look at the poster child for Ironman Lake Tahoe, which they decided to not have any pros, which burns me, then they um, they put in the uh, in all the race imagery Angela Nath coming out of the water and Angela Nath is a pro. So you're using a pro to sell the race with and uh, but then you're trying to say, well, we're not going to pay any pros to come, so we don't have to pay any uh, any uh, award fees. And it's so uh, two-sided there, or so obvious, that pros sell races. <laughs> you're using a pro in the image of the race. And then you don't want pro, you don't want to have to pay pros to come. So, and this is what happens. Races get canceled. That's my opinion, and I'm going to run with it. Okay, let's see. Also... I went to a wedding in Salem, Massachusetts, which is home of the Salem Witch Trials, and it was crazy. It was a triathlete wedding. It was John Hirsch and Christine Lynch, who have both been on this show plenty. I've hung out with a lot. It was an honor to be invited to go to this wedding, and I have to say, there was more hot triathlete, triathlete, hot triathlete bodies at this wedding that I've ever seen at any kind of social function in my entire life. There's, you know, the girls wear like the, um, the shoulderless, uh, I don't know what you call it cause I'm not a fashion dude, uh, dresses and stuff. There was more ripped muscles and tattoos of just crazy stuff up and down and, uh, people that were just crazy fit and built into the wedding. If you wanted to, you could, uh, go to, the uh, trail run and the cyclocross race that went on. Um, that was part of the wedding. Uh, I mean, the race wasn't part of the wedding, but the race, the wedding party was going to go do the race. And um, I think there was some more stuff too. A bike ride that was all involved. And this is what happens when John's a pro triathlete and he's a, he's a great coach and everything. So he's got this huge following of athletes and friends. 
Um, there was a guy there that whose nickname was Strong Jesus, and just to give you an idea. And then uh, I'll, I'll, and John used to be in a punk rock band, and uh, and this is out of uh, John lives in New York uh, and comes from uh, Block Island, and there's this whole northeastern hard punk rock scene that he comes from. And Christine, uh, same kind of thing, uh, super earthy, healthy chick. And she has actually accidentally qualified for her pro card, I think several times by now and just never took it <laughs> because she's too busy just uh, doing, running her own business and being healthy and stuff like that. It, I mean, the, the wedding was crazy. The hotel we stayed in was haunted. Uh, Salem is a city that a town north of Boston that's right on the water, surprisingly. I didn't know it was right on the water. That is witch and pirate crazy. And you start going uh, middle September through past October, and that's like their Halloween, Christmas, New Year's, 4th of July, everything all wrapped in one. The entire town seems to celebrate Halloween uh, constantly, all day, all night. There's tours. There's four different witch museums, um, a pirate museum or two. The graveyard where they buried the uh, the people uh, accused of being witches, and um, and the city takes it all very very seriously and solemnly, and but also it's a big it's a big celebration of uh, freedom, and then you can hop over. We went over to Boston and did the uh, the Independence or the Freedom Trail, where we saw all the all the things that the places where important things happened in American history for the uh, the kicking off of the 13 colonies into uh, the United States as we know it today. It was just absolutely amazing. Um, I went over to uh, this wedding knowing I'd probably take four days. I brought some running stuff with me, but I trained my ass off because we got the ultra baby coming up, my self-supported Ultraman that I'm doing. And I figured I would train hard, super, super hard, so that my four days there, I wouldn't be interested in training at all. And I wasn't interested in training at all period and it worked and I came back after five days well four days completely off so my fifth day I came back uh, to college station got on the bike trainer and my legs still hurt really really badly and I was like all right I did it (laughs) smart most a lot of if I had any free time during this trip it was uh, taking a nap okay so that's uh, all the triathlon news, and so that we can get to uh, the Zen and the, the uh, emails, uh, answering questions and stuff, we need to uh, start talking to Bruckner Chase. Let's go ahead and get started with Bruckner, uh, kind of like a follow-up with uh, last week's podcast with uh, Morgan Christian talking about open water swimming, what it takes, how you do it. We talk about this huge race that he's doing in Australia, so those of you in Oz down under will really enjoy this part. and. Yeah, he's a really big deal, and stay tuned towards the end of it. We start talking about his wife, who is a, I think he said she's a PhD and does research in neurology and, and uh, mindfulness training and stuff. Oh my gosh, it's so cool. So here we go. Here is Bruckner Chase. Welcome to the next level. Hey man, Brad, how's it going? Doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I don't think we uh, we didn't have Skype when we talked the first time five years ago. Uh, it has. I can't believe it's been five years. Yeah, holy. And uh, uh, 
we got so much catching up to do with uh, everything that's going on and um, I'm so stoked that you got back in touch with me, man. Yeah, I was, you know, you're like my guilty pleasure. I'm not in the car much, but I'm listening to the podcast. It's kind of how I keep a, keep a finger on the, the vibe of what's going on in, in the triathlon ranks, aside from, you know, the athletes we have here. So yeah. I was like, man, he's doing so much stuff that's in sync with what we do. I've got to, I've got to reach out. It's, and I, <laughs> I typed that Twitter thing. It had been five years. I'm like, no way. I feel like I've lived a lifetime since then. You as well, probably. Yeah, and I follow you on um, on Facebook and Twitter. But you know, yeah. I, th- I think you and I are kind of on the same page as far as the vibe we're putting out there. So yeah, I'll, totally. I'm happily over on that short list, and uh, yeah. we still we have not hit the ocean together. We haven't hit the water. I don't, we haven't met in person. I mean, I was listening to one of your podcasts. Now you're out to, in San Diego every once in a while. I may finally drift down to Texas on some stuff. So if I'm anywhere in the region, we got to get together. Yeah, the the um, I think maybe on our on our last podcast together, you were was it where we figured out that we grew up like really close to each other, just a little bit different age group. Like you're maybe like five, ten years older than me or something like that. But did you grow up northeast side of Houston too? As no, well, I went to school at Rice in Houston. Oh, okay, yeah. And, I think that was it. So I my triathlon career kind of started in Texas. Yeah, I did like uh, the 1984 Houston triathlon. Uh-huh. It's in the Woodlands College Station, uh, Waco. Um, I don't remember what it was because I was born and raised in Tennessee, but you know, uh-huh. so I'm from the South, you know, originally. So I did not come at this ocean sport thing with you know the North Shore in my blood. That's yeah. for sure. So what, um, what I was, I lived in Tennessee. I lived in Franklin as a kid for a That's few years. Nashville or, uh, wait, where was Franklin? Yeah, it's Nashville. Yeah. Nashville area. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was Memphis. Memphis. Oh, okay. West Tennessee. West Tennessee. Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to Texas as soon as you could. That's a good, that's, that's like me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what was the college station try like? Cause I heard legends of that thing. Like, was it, was it at the A&M pool or did they do Lake Bryan? Do you remember? I think it was Lake Bryan. Okay, um, cool. um, I mean, we're talking, there was, um, there was like a newspaper style magazine that covered races back then called runner triathlete news. I don't even know if it's still around. Um, um, I remember that, but I don't know if it's still around. I definitely remember it. Yeah. But there was, you know, all the crew from, from Austin, um, you know, there was huge, you know, a huge triathlon contingent from Austin. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, Rip Esselstein was uh-huh. down there. A couple yeah. of Canadian athletes that had migrated down to Austin. A guy named Nick Taylor. Um, who else? Uh, Evan Mossman. Um, but there was a crew of us from like Houston area, up by the Woodlands, down in Sugarland. Uh-huh. Big crew in Austin, and a big triathlon camp in College Station that would show up at races. I know when we raced in Waco, it was like a pool race. You know, a lot of these time trial style races in Texas in the early. I mean, I remember doing a a run, swim, bike down in Sugarland. I think uh, where we jumped into a pool after doing a run, uh-huh. back and forth for 400 meters, and then hopped out and did a bike ride. I mean, stuff was all over the place. Wow, I I did do um in high school in 1990 1989. I did do a swim meet at the Rice uh, pool. Yeah. Um, I came all the way up from Harlingen to come to a, a big swim meet. Came in, came to civilization from the valley. <laughs> well, that pool it was uh, that pool was old back then when yeah. I was in it. I think they finally replaced it and upgraded it. But that was uh, 
Like the only pool that was more dungeon like than the rice pool was probably the A and M pool. Yeah, they finally demolished that thing. That thing yeah. was sad. Basement, it was yeah, it was it was really rough. Very rough. Yeah. Well awesome, man. So I saw that you're doing this um okay, well we talked five years five years ago, weren't you doing like um some a swim across Monterey Bay? Yeah, I think I had just finished swimming across Monterey Bay. I was working with um the National Marine Sanctuaries, which is a division of NOAA, uh, there's 14 sanctuaries around the U.S. These, that is, by the way, that is so cool. Dude. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, you know, right after swimming across Monterey Bay. I think this is before uh, you and I talked. Right after that, and, uh -huh. then, and for the next two or three years, I was doing a lot of stuff with sanctuaries. I went and swam right an eight mile swim from an underwater habitat off the uh, coast of uh, Key Largo in Florida, or um, uh, yeah, Key Largo in Florida. Uh -huh. So I went back to the mainland across all these, you know, pristine reef areas and where they were doing all this research in this underwater lab. Um, and then from there, I went down to American Samoa. And for the last couple of three years, uh, I did a bunch of work in American Samoa, training there, Department of Public Safety, Police and Fire. We created an open water swim program for their high school uh, in Pongo Pongo. Uh -huh. and did a lot of work in some of the villages down there. And then um, gradually kind of began doing more surf life-saving sports. And so from doing the really long-distance swims only uh -huh. and doing a lot of the lifeguard sports, surf ski racing, paddleboard racing, the U.S. Lifeguard Association races, and uh, now I'm going back down to Australia to do some racing down there in two weeks. So when I I was doing the, um, the SOS triathlon and up – uh, I don't know, it's upstate New York, but in mid-state New York. The, um, the, we stayed at the house, and the wife, the mom that, that was there, was the national or world champion one year of a life-saving competition. So really? she, I can't remember her name. Um, but this they, is up in New York, right? And so, Yeah, the competition was either held in Australia or Atlantic City. I can't remember. And yeah, they have to row out in boats and, yeah, yeah. and do all this crazy stuff. It was insane. Like she was in such amazing shape. It was crazy. There is, um, there's a whole, um, there's a global uh, international life saving race. I mean, the Australian and New Zealanders just dominate. Right. Uh, the world championships take place every other year. Uh, there's a professional circuit down in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and then in, in South Jersey, New York, there's this huge culture of, of surf lifesaving racing, you know, that right. goes back, you know, almost a hundred years from when the first beach patrol was founded in Atlantic city. So yeah. there's this huge surf lifesaving culture in New York, New Jersey. Some of the oldest beach patrols in the country are along this section of the Atlantic coast and not California. They were here first. Yes. Yeah. The, it was awesome. The photos that she had and the competitions and stuff. It was, it was really neat. So, um, so something you got coming up is called this thing called the Cooley gold. What is that? Yeah. The cooling got gold is a surf life saving version of the Kona Ironman. Basically uh -huh. it, uh, has been around for 30 years. It actually started as a movie, believe it or not. Back in 1984, they wanted to make a movie about surf life-saving in Australia. I mean, uh, it featured two kids that were racing underneath their father's guidance, and they were trying to win this big surf life-saving Ironman-style race that included uh, running, 
surf, ski, paddleboard, and swim. It was like a five or six hour race. Whereas most of the racing they do is 15 to 20 minutes. This was a five to six hour race off the coast of the Gold Coast in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And rather than creating you know, a fake event and just scenes, they actually put on a race. And yeah. this race was 1984. The movie was the, you know, the race was the backdrop for the movie. And then the race has been going on pretty much since then. There were some years that it went away, but it's, it's been back for the last several years. Um, last year, I became the fifth American in 30 years to complete the race. Um, and I'm going back again in two weeks. And it's, it's all offshore or on the beach uh, from Coolangatta up towards uh, Gold Coast, you surf ski, and a surf ski is like a really fast kayak, really narrow, really tippy, but really fast. Okay. Um, you don't see much around here. You see a few in California, a lot in Australia. So the race is a, roughly a, a 15-mile surf ski, and then a two-mile run, and then a two-and-a-half-mile swim, and then a four-and-a-half-mile paddleboard race, and then another five-mile run to finish. And it takes anywhere from four to six hours, depending upon conditions and and what you're up for. Oh, I, I just found it, and I'm looking at a map online. So, like this coast, I'm sure it's not facing the right way. But anyway, you start and you swim along the coast, like the coast. No, you 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 uh, surf, surf ski, ski with yeah. uh, with the coast on your left hand side. Yeah, and you go out. This is all in kilometers. Yeah. And so you go out 23K and then you kind of turn around and come back, maybe like 5K or something like that. And then yeah. you come ashore and then, yeah, you run, you run one point, I'm trying to, 1.8K. Yeah. And it's actually a little bit longer than that. You actually go yeah. up over this headland, like over this, you climb these really steep hills right after you get out of the water, <laughs> down, and yeah. then get along the sand. So it's all in soft sand at the water's edge. Yeah, um, and then you you head out and like swim a loop real yeah, quick. About a two and a quarter, so three point five k is like two point two miles or two point yeah, just under an Ironman distance swim. Dude, okay, and then you turn once you get back to shore, you you go. What's the the six point one is another that's run. a paddleboard. So paddleboard, awesome man. Okay, cool. So a prone. Yeah. So it's a prone paddleboard, not yeah. stand up, and we race on not like the long distance boards, but the ten foot six lifeguard race boards. Uh-huh. So you're paddling the whole time. So six point one k's, about four miles, a little over four miles, four and a half miles. Yeah. And then you come in just past these headlands, drop the board, put on some shoes, and yeah, seven point one kilometer run to the finish, which is uh, probably about what four and a half, just under five miles, I guess. Yeah. I'd almost be good at this. Yeah. This would be, this is like, yeah, it really favors like strong upper body swimming types with a little bit of running mixed in. And it's a, it's a lot of skill because last yeah. year it was some of the worst conditions they've ever had. Yeah. Uh, 30 mile an hour winds and four to six foot swell. Wow. Um, and the surf skis probably about a mile offshore. Yeah. So <clears throat> you're really getting bounced around a lot. So between the ski and the swim, if you're not really comfortable in really diverse surf conditions and reading the waves and stuff, you're going to have a really long day. And <laughs> yeah. that pretty much happened to me. It was so rough. I think a quarter of the field dropped out last year, including the previous year's winter. Um, so wow. it, was, it was really tough. I'm hoping for a little bit better conditions this year, but yeah. it's, it's such a challenge. I mean, you've got to know, you've got to know the ocean. You've got to know how to pace yourself through all these transitions uh, back and forth, but it's 
it'd been a dream. I mean, I, I, I'd known about the race for 30 years and had always wanted to do it. So yeah. it was, you know, I, it's like, um, you know, I, almost like a bucket list thing, but never imagined doing it. But over the last few years, slowly developed, the. Uh, the skill set to do it, and then you know tapped on the in, you know the endurance I had from doing triathlons and ultra distance running and all that, which um, you know kind of set it up pretty well. Knowing how to go from event to event, figuring out the nutrition and the pacing for such a long distance event. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to you about that. But first, like, do you have to do you have to qualify for this, or you could put your name in the hat, or how many? It's, it, the pictures look like it's really popular. Like it's yeah. really cool. It's really popular. It's it's a kind of an invitation only race. So you uh -huh. have to get. It's mostly Australians. Not a lot of uh, non Australians get into the race. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty selective just because of the the equipment and skill set. But you know anyone can race. You you can put in an application. You know tell them you know why you need to be there. You pretty much have to be a professional uh, lifeguard, ocean lifeguard. So you have to, mm -hmm. like I'm a member of the United States Life Saving Association. I race for the Monmouth County national team yeah. in, on, uh, on the East Coast. So you kind of have to come at the race through, you know, one of your surf lifesaving agencies. Yeah. Um, so there's, while there's a civilian division in Australia, to enter from overseas, you pretty much have to come through a surf lifesaving agency. Yeah, and so they're broken down into there's elite male and elite female, and then under nineteen male and female, and then then it's broken twenty to twenty nine, twenty to yeah uh, thirty to thirty nine. So like every ten years, up to fifty plus. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Cool. So are you racing elite? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I came at this way too late for that. This yeah. Is, uh, I'm gonna race. Uh, I'm. 49, so I've got one more year in the 40-49 age group, and uh, I got beat pretty badly last year, just was not really ready for the conditions we've got, so uh, I've spent a lot of time this winter working on my skill on the ski, but yeah, those elite guys, it's just scary to watch the Australians go at it. I mean, it's it's like lining up to some of these elite you know, marathoners that are winning New York, and it's like... You know they're going so fast. It's like you can, I couldn't hit that kind of pace for one mile running, much less string oh. together six. Yeah, I know what you're so, talking about. To see these guys take off on some of these craft and stuff is just unbelievable. I mean, they do stuff through the waves that yeah. I remember down there the first time last year. Going, there's just no way. I mean, waves are breaking, and they're taking these twenty foot surf skis out through you know six foot waves like it's nothing. And I'm I'm sitting there on shore just cowering, going, I I don't know about this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's like when lining up for a 5K, and then you're like, man, I think I might have a chance, like a small like 5K. Yeah. I think I might have a chance at being towards the front of this thing, and then within mile one, somebody's already disappeared over the horizon. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like, um, yeah. okay, well, I guess we need to recalibrate recal what my idea of what we're going to do here. The uh, One of the more humbling racing experiences, because, yeah. you know, like, we've, we've had pretty uh, diverse endurance backgrounds, you know, from, mm -hmm. from running to triathlon to cycling to swimming. And, uh, this was, this is a really kind of humbling experience. It's also really exciting to be completely new at something, you know, to yeah. be, um, you know, as we get older to kind of find something that's brand new and have to, to learn how to put it all together. I mean, I love that, that challenge of being, you know, out of your element. Yeah. You know, what's this going to look like? You know, how am I, the whole puzzle of figuring it out, you know, kind of like figuring out, 
you know, the, the swim, the bike, the run, the transition, what are you good at? Where do you play your strengths out? You know, cause you know, the Ironman is very much a thinking event. You know, you've got a lot to analyze and go through and, you know, that's what I really like about some of the stuff I'm getting into now because, um, you're fully engaged physically. It's really demanding, but you have to be absolutely aware of every moment mentally. I mean, you're, you're planning everything and especially in the ocean, there is no power meter on a paddleboard. There's no, yeah, um, yeah. um, you know, you, you really, there's nothing that's really measuring your progress other than your, your own perceived exertion and, and reading the competition the, the way Everybody's around you. Yeah. And everyone's around you or not around you in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As you learn. <laughs> As they leave you behind. Yeah. Wow. When you get down to Australia, do you have to recalibrate your, your, your English to understand their accent for a little bit? Does it take a little while to, to settle in? It, uh, it's, it's, a little bit less of a culture shock. When I was uh, in high school, I lived down there for a year as an exchange student. Oh, okay. So when I was a junior in high school, I lived in Australia, and then I've been back. Uh, this will be my fourth trip back down there. Uh -huh. um, and as soon as I step off the plane, I just smile because it, it's just this flood of memories from you know when I was yeah. you know, 16 years old living down there. Um, but it's definitely a switch. Right. Uh, people look at me like, you know, twice going, what did you just say? And then I'm doing the same thing. And depending on how, yeah. on who I'm talking to, I may have no idea what they're saying. Yeah. And, and there's nothing harder to understand than hanging out with a bunch of Australians at a bar after a race when you've all been drinking a little bit. And I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> I know, right? Barely hearing it anyway. So, yeah. yeah. I remember surfing on the coast at Galveston and then this guy walks up to me I'm not going to do the Australian accent correctly, but he's like, you know, I can rent a mall, you know, <laughs> like what, and he, you know, a mall and, and through all my surfing background, I was like, Oh, longboard. And he's like, he looked at me like I was ridiculous. And I was like, yeah, over there, you can go get one. Um, uh, let's, let's talk about, uh, nutrition, man. Um, and my, and then after that, let's do like mindset, all the, all the, like, um, like you've been saying, you know, like getting into kind of like the relaxed and zen mindset of stuff and, and um, trying to do things with a good perspective. But so what do you, how, how, how long are your training sessions for this kind of stuff? Training sessions for me are, it's probably not, the duration of training is probably a little bit less than when I used to do Ironman training or ultra distance training. Uh -huh. um, it's probably averaging between two to three hours a day. Um, and long days, uh, probably pushing closer to like four hours or so. That's still quite um, a bit. <laughs> That's yeah, very it, reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not. Uh, so it gets tough because right now I'm really in a high volume sort of phase. Uh -huh. And then on days off, you'd love this. On days off, where you really just kind of need to work on skill. Mm -hmm. You know, part of my workout is go out in the surf and surf. You know, go out and play in the waves and just yeah. spend time reading the waves. Uh, taking the board out and kind of riding in and out. So days off, the skill development still lands me in the ocean, you know, out there playing around. Yeah, that's um, great. It actually has a really positive impact on how well I race and stuff. Yeah. So it's about it's about a three hour, two to three hours a day. Um, most of my workouts combine multiple events. Um, it's it was interesting last year training for this for the first time. Um, how even adding one event, you know, triathlon, swim, bike, and run. Mm -hmm. This swim, bike, run, surf, ski, and paddle, just adding that fourth event really kind of 
challenged me to find a way to marry all these together um, and really mastering the transitions as well because there's multiple transitions. You're transitioning to running twice. Right. Um, so almost all of my workouts would combine, you know, going through two sports, if not three. Yeah. So training on the ocean almost all the time. Every time I got off the surf ski, I'd go and run one mile or two mile just to get my legs that are locked into place on a surf ski used to then switching and running through soft sand, you know, which can be really just feel like you're standing still sometimes. Is the, is the surf ski like, um, like it is with triathlon where, or cycling where you can just keep sinking money into it to get more speed or does it kind of top out at a thousand dollars, a couple thousand dollars or, or what? Tops out at about $4,000. Okay. Um, so the surf skis that we use in this are what they call uh, lifeguard spec skis uh -huh. or spec skis. They cannot be lighter than about 39 pounds and they cannot be longer than about 19 and a half feet. It did, um, do they have them there so you don't have to bring one or anything, right? Yeah, I actually... Most, most of them are manufactured in Australia. In fact, you cannot even... None of these are manufactured in the U.S. So... I work with uh, Dolphin Surfcraft, which is based in Australia. Uh, Zane Holmes is um, the owner of the company and also one of the, the greatest Ironmen ever in Australia. Mm -hmm. So he um, uh, designed and built a surf ski. They're custom made for you. So kind of like a custom bike, they're, they're set to your uh, leg length and your size so that you can kind of brace yourself in there from right. your, your tailbone to where your heels are kind of locked into the cockpit. Um, so those are, you know, you can make them stiffer by putting carbon fiber in there, but you can't lighten them up a lot because they can't weigh less than this, you know, 39 and a half pounds. Reason being, when we race these in shorter stuff, you're going in and out through the surf. So if you make them too light, they won't hold up to the pounding of like a four-foot wave breaking. And these yeah. are designed, most of the racing on these is in and out through the surf. So, you know, the feeling was if you go too light, they're going to snap. And then they become dangerous. And I've actually seen one break in half before where someone was coming in on a wave, the nose dug into the sand and oh, yeah. the back of it and literally snapped it in half. These um, are cool. I'm looking at pictures of them online. If people want to check them out, I'm looking at surf. Oh, my gosh. Holy cow. This must be a race. There's one dude almost on top of like three other guys coming in. Oh, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> and decals all along them, you know, like sponsor yeah. decals and stuff. Oh, this is cool. Um, I'm telling you, this would be... You would you would love this. Yeah. I mean, you and I you and I have to hit the water together because I've been preaching this, you know, as a way to learn how to get more comfortable in the water. Yeah. The fastest craft on the water. I mean, they this you know cool. they're seven miles an hour. So it's it's quick. They're really fast. Is this guy um, hydroplane? There's no way. Is this guy hydroplaning? Can you hydroplane on one? This if you're be... going seven miles an hour and launch off of a wave, you can get airborne. This guy's hydroplane. He he mounted hydroplanes under it somehow. Anyway, the, uh, anyway the, so if people Google... Um, well, you can go to dolphinsurfcraft.au, I okay. think. Um, yeah, dolphinsurfcraft.com.au. Uh, Dolphin Surfcraft is who I work with. Um, and they, you know, they import boards over to the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. but they make some of the state-of-the-art surf skis and boards that we use. And um, I'm looking at pictures. I just Googled uh, surf ski kayak yeah and then um and went over to images this is crazy this looks so much fun um blast oh, yeah the yeah holy cow the uh oh yeah here's one that's cracked somebody smashed it 
That's, yep. that's expensive. They're People trying to fix what, it. They ask what surf skiing's like, and I'm like, it's kind of like it's like uh, it's like if you were trail riding in an earthquake on a unicycle. It's a little bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, this is neat. They have two-person ones. No, yes. but yeah, they do. Yes, two-person. There are tandem surf skis. They look epically skinny. Like what? Like a two feet across, maybe one and a half feet across. 19, Twenty inches, about twenty inches wide. Wow, that's neat, man. Um, yeah, when I was at um, Port Aransas the other day, I was it was on a podcast a few pod episodes ago. Yeah, I took out the. I have a ten-foot longboard, and um, it's just skinny enough where I can almost use it as a paddleboard and uh -huh. I put a um I put a towel down on the deck. I don't care if it got I didn't care if it got wet or not. I put a towel down on the deck as padding mm -hmm. and then just went paddleboarding up and down the shoreline um on that thing. It was so much fun because it feels so you, I think it was you that taught me this um that if you want to get in some swimming Right, mm -hmm. but the water's kind of questionable. You're not really sure if you right. want to be in it that much and stuff. You can get a paddleboard and it simulates swimming, and you can just swim all over the place. Boats can see you better. You can sit up on it. You can mount fuel to the top of it. Oh yeah, it's yeah. huge. We started um, over here. We run an Ocean City. Um, we run an open water swim club, and we now do coach prone paddleboard workouts because it develops that power phase of your stroke. Mm -hmm. you, you spend a lot of time teaching people how to, you know, get an early forearm catch and that front 10 or 15%, but then all the power is really kind of as your arm comes up underneath your body, mm -hmm. which is really like you experienced the paddleboard stroke. So what you can do is if someone's swimming, A, when they're lying out on that board, you know, it lines them up, you know, so they've got good body alignment across their torso, you know, spine, head, hips, and, and yeah. shoulders. They develop that power part of their stroke from, from pulling through, but also puts their head up above the water. So on their hand entry, their forearm positioning, you can talk to them as they're doing it, mm -hmm. and they can watch it as well. And what's also really good with athletes going out into the water is they can learn to read the water. They can see how a little bit of chop impacts them as they're moving across it. They can look for currents. They can learn how to navigate when currents are pushing them one way or the other, and you get to talk to them all at the same time. Yeah. Um, but so many people, you know, swimming, once they're, their head's down and they're looking into that, you know, blackness or the muck from a Louisiana bayou or the back bays of Ocean City, <laughs> you know, this way they can kind of get comfortable going, oh, okay, I know where I am, yeah. and this isn't so bad. Some people built a clear one. That was pretty neat. That looks neat. Um, yeah. So, uh Let's see. I got another question. Okay, let's talk about nutrition. Yeah, um, you're you're very successful at this kind of stuff. How how what do you eat and look for for this? And man, you're talking about this this coolie gold is going to be intense, right? So yeah. Yeah. Are you going to do like um uh like simple carbs most of the way because fat and protein would kind of get kind of stuck in you, I think, if you're going hard enough. Yeah, it's because it's pretty intense. Even though it's five or six hours. Each segment is, you know, other than the surf ski being about two hours long, everything else is like an hour. And it, it you've got to have some explosion to go out through the waves and, and get in and out. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's almost a pure carbohydrate fueling during the event. And I stick to about 200 to 300 calories an hour probably. Yeah. But since I'm going down and it'll be the start of the spring down there, it'll be warm but not too hot. So electrolytes and... You know, staying hydrated and 
having my electrolytes in balance so I'm not cramping up as I switch from sport to sport is really critical for me. And that was really important last year. Yeah. Um, they require you on the surf ski because there are no aid stations. So when you push off from shore, you're going to be out there for two hours. <laughs> uh, there is no boat support. There's no aid station. So you're required to carry 100 milliliters of fluid with you in your life jacket, in like a camelback. Um, and I... Um, I use uh, Goose brew tabs that don't really have uh, calories, but they're just electrolyte. Yeah, so I'll have a goo pack, which is about 100 calories at the start, um, and then have this uh, mostly electrolytes for out on the out on the ocean. And then every time I come in through a transition, which is about on the hour, um, I'll grab another gel pack, you know, goo gel pack. So it's about 100 calories. Um, staying away from the caffeine until probably later on, just yeah. so I'm getting kind of a, a good carbohydrate burn and I'm, I'm kind of maintaining. Um, and that kind of, that gets me through. Um, you figure on the swim, you know, especially with the swim being in the middle, you know, you talk about that in an Ironman race, um, you start the bike, depending on how long you're out in the swim at a deficit, you know, you probably haven't drunk or taken any calories. Yeah, so this is... Yeah, this happens in the middle of the race. So you're constantly, as you transition from one sport to the next, you know, trying to down, you know, eight to ten ounces of, of liquid. And I switch to a calorie kind of carbohydrate uh, drink between uh, between transitions to get calories in and knowing that I'm going to develop a little bit of a deficit until I come back to shore and I refuel again. Um Last year, um, you know, it took a lot longer than I expected because of the conditions being so rough. Um, but my nutrition was pretty dialed. You know, I, I was refueling at all the right times, so my energy level stayed well. I just got knocked around by the surf so badly. Yeah. This is. But uh, it, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but it's about it's about 300 calories. But the the fluid and fuel because it gets hot, uh, especially out on the ocean, is is really tough because it's not like when you're on the bike and you can drink all the time um, or on the run where you can you know grab a flask and you hold it in your hand the whole time you know when you're on the surf ski paddling we actually use a you actually put a wire on your camelback uh, tube so you can stiffen it up and have it so it's sticking right there next to your mouth yeah so you can turn your head and, and grab it um, <clears throat> because if you let go of the paddle all of a sudden now you're not as stable and you're you're not moving forward. Oh, that's so, crazy. Okay, wait, wait a minute. So this is like a guy playing a guitar and then has a harmonica mounted in front of his face. Yeah, exactly like that. So <laughs> Okay, this is getting nuts. Like, okay, now I got I got a I think we got a better idea of how crazy this is. Oh, okay. So you can't pause to yeah. to to use your hand to um to put the camel back to your mouth. Think of it this way. If you if the only way to get a drink or a goo pack on the bike during an Ironman was to use your feet, that's what it's like. Wow. So if yeah. you stop <clears throat> if you stop moving if you stop moving your arms uh -huh. on the paddleboard, on the swim, or on the surf ski, you stop moving forward. Yeah. The only thing and you know, yet, you know, if you want to grab a drink on any of those, you've got to stop. Yeah. So you want to minimize that as much as possible, especially on the paddleboard where we were paddling into a 20 to 30 mile an hour wind. If you stop paddling for an instant, you started going backwards. Wow. Can you draft off the other paddlers? Yes, you can. Um, drafting's, you know, drafting's legal. I mean, it's like drafting in the swim. You can yeah. tuck in behind somebody, 
um, and drafting on the paddleboard, um, I think, is almost um, as significant as or more so than drafting someone on the bike Hmm. because you're moving through this denser medium, through the water. And when you tuck into that slipstream coming off the back of their board, you can feel yourself almost get pulled along. Um, it's almost like if you, um, if you drop your pool buoy in the water after you've gotten out and you kind of try to pull it towards you by moving your hand in front of it and you create this kind of suction that pulls it towards you on the wall. Yeah. It moves it's like that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This is really cool. Okay. I just got an idea of how crazy, how intense the, uh, competition is. That's nice. The, uh. I'm also, I need to get away from this surf, ski, kayak porn that I'm looking at. (laughs) (laughs) These boats are cool, man. Like eye candy. It's like, and and you know this because you spend a lot of time in the ocean. You're a surfer as well. It's like, it's like walking the halls of Interbike. You know, when I go down there and I go to the manufacturer, you know, go to Dolphin, I'm looking down the aisles of, you know, at at what Zane's, you know, building these brand new skis being built and stuff and the colors and what they're doing to them. It's like... (laughs) It's like being in a, in a toy store, you know. It's incredible, and you, they're all over the place down there. Yeah, it's, I'll send you some photos. Yeah, it's always fun because, like, when you see stuff like that, what goes through your mind is kind of like maybe that's the thing that I could get that I need that could make oh, yeah. me faster. Yeah, you know? and it draws your eye in. Um, all right, let's talk about. Uh, well, it's the weekend, the same weekend as uh, Ironman Triathlon Championships. So this this uh, this October. October 11th. So there's a short course race yeah. on the 10th, and then the long course race that I take part in is on the 11th. Uh, and is that that's the same day as uh, Kona? Um, Kona might be on Saturday. Yours is Sunday. Yeah, Sunday. Let me Would look it, it up real quick. Um, in your ultra, the same weekend. When are you doing? Yeah, it? mine's three okay. days, and so people are going to have a lot of fun following all this craziness going on that weekend. Let's see, Ironman World Championship. 2015. Let's see what the date is. You know, they're talking about, it's just rumors and it'll probably, who knows, you know, um, maybe starting because it's crowded now Yeah. and everybody's the same speed. I did uh, nationals one time in Vermont and I actually, I didn't enjoy the racing itself because to get to nationals, everybody's about the same speed, right? Mm -hmm. So they fire you off and the next thing you're in a, you're bumping into each other and, and, fighting for position the entire race you know yeah um so kona is supposed to be a lot like that uh it's on the 10th kona's on saturday wow and then yours is on sunday um the uh so they're talking about maybe someday uh doing you know the men's race on one day and the women's race on the other on you know saturday and sunday something like that so. Well, it's kind of, I mean, it's, you know, it makes for a long day, but you figure if you're, if you're racing like the elites, uh, or the men on, you know, if you're racing the elites on one day, it's not like it's a 17 hour day, you know, it's an eight or nine hour race, you know, are they, uh, yeah, that's true. But you know, some of these Ironmans now where it's a two loop swim course, um, it, I bet it's congested the whole time, yeah. you know, even, even in waves, I think Ironman Florida, they come out of the water you know, run through a chute and then go back out for another 1.2 mile loop, right? So I can't imagine that swim course is ever, you know, yeah, there's ever right. a spot where you're not surrounded by people. All the all the races that are on flat ground, um, people stay bunched up uh, because there's no hills to kind of break them up too. So you get really bad drafting and people upset over that too on the bike. So yeah, yeah always changes, right? You've been doing this a long time. 
<laughs> yeah, I think, I think we talked about that. I think I did my first Ironman distance race in uh, Cape Cod outside of Boston in mm-hmm. 1985. I think maybe yeah. there were 300 people. I think Scott Tenley won it. Um, yeah. We swam in Nantucket Sound, and I think maybe maybe there were three buoys on a 2.4-mile swim. You know, it's like... <laughs> I remember being out there going, I remember asking someone, which way do we go? You know, it's like asking for directions in the yeah. city somewhere. I'm out in the middle of Nantucket Sound going, have you seen a buoy around here somewhere that we're supposed to aim to? And it was, yeah. I just remember being, it was one big loop. You know, there might have been a couple of lifeguards out there and, you know, maybe three or four buoys, if that. Yeah. But uh, you're pretty much, you're set off from shore and it's like you kind of find your own way. Yeah, the... Um the swim I'm doing for the ultra baby is there's no buoys. <laughs> it's a, but what we're going to, this, the lake, the lake is only 1.2 miles across. So I'm going to swim across and back and across and back across, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. we're going to swim more to landmarks and it's small enough. You can see the shore the whole time, you know, all around you. So, um, it's a night, it's actually like a really good lake to swim in because it's not big enough to get big chop. It'll get choppy, but it won't get waves, yeah. you know. So it's it's actually kind of pleasant. And and then when it's it when it's smooth, there's not much boat traffic. It's actually pretty nice. It actually sounds pretty good when you were describing. Hey, are you there? Yeah. Hey, we just I'm got back. internet. We've been two months without internet or TV at our house. Um, yeah, I thought I remember reading something or hearing something. <laughs> which I both I loved it, you know. Yeah. Because it's like camping. <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, as somebody, somebody I was talking with Twitter on uh, said, you know, no TV is awesome, but no internet gets nowadays, you know, because you do so much bill paying and all kinds of stuff, finding out about things, you know, on the internet. That uh, yeah. If anyway, I, if I asked the internet a question, I I don't know if I could get through most days. Yeah. It, so like I'm stuck with uh, I, we just got it set up yesterday, so apparently our connection dropped out. But um, the uh, so now I'm I'm tethered to my phone to to uh, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's iron man right it's endurance training right there's there's always going to be yeah. obstacles so yeah. um the uh tell me about um your uh all these years of doing this stuff the the mindset and your approach to this i mean you kind of said something earlier about that uh, you know it was at after doing this you know and you're you're uh, 49 so it's it's cool to do something that's a little bit different and um, you've actually kind of gone gone round. I don't know. It was round robin the term, but you were competitive, and then you got into uh, for many years. You know, doing helping others and being uh, an environmental spokesperson, right? Yeah. And like swimming across Monterey Bay and all this, setting up lifeguard programs and and all this really cool stuff. And now you're kind of getting back into competition again. Um, were you out of competition for, for 10 years or so, and now you're getting back into it or, or, um, what's been going on? Well, that's a good question. And it's, um, I work with a lot of athletes. Hey, are you back? Hey, all right. But we also have a, a football game going on in town and <laughs> it brings down all the cell phone networks. I think mean, like literally right now. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the competition yeah. I I was doing more just adventure stuff. Uh, yeah, adventure. Yeah, in remote areas, you know, American Samoa, um, and so the focus was on just kind of exploring, you know, my own limits. Um, but there weren't really start and finish lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were telling stories. We were connecting other people to the ocean. Um, 
But yeah, you're kind of right. Actually, I wasn't racing as much. I was still jumping into races. And then over the last uh, four or five years, the surf lifesaving sports have become kind of a vehicle um, of competing again, challenging myself, and bringing this diverse group of people to this ocean stop. So still very much a spokesperson for you know connecting people to the oceans and taking care of our environment, but using sport and activities in the ocean as a way to make it personal for them. And, you know, my own type A personality uh, was always there, probably a little bit dormant, but uh, I've enjoyed this new challenge of these new sports that are testing me mentally and physically. Um, And what's really great about the ocean-related sports is there's so much uh, knowledge and awareness that you've got to bring in to every race that um, I love racing against 18, 19, 20-year-old college swimmers mm-hmm. who are new to the ocean and maybe they're they're much fitter, much faster. I wouldn't want to swim a 200 freestyle against them in a pool, right. but I love if all of a sudden we've got to navigate to a flag a half mile offshore. Um, <laughs> they're scared. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's... Uh, it's a great equalizer. I think as we, um, uh, it's a matter of taking this whole package as an athlete or it's, it's a challenge in a different way. And I love being completely engaged physically and mentally in what we're doing. Yeah. The, uh, growing up in the Boy Scouts, we did so much camping and hiking in the wilderness that that's a, such a great way to teach you environmental responsibility, you know, cause when you're out there, you learn to love it. And yeah, yeah, and um, and actually, one of the biggest uh, sources for funding for environmental preservation comes from hunting and fishing licenses. Those people are happy to um, pitch in. Um, well, I think, yeah, I mean, like Ducks Unlimited. I mean, some of these yeah. groups are, are some of the most staunch uh, conservation groups because they're protecting these these habitats. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the people out there hunting and fishing responsibly. Uh, huge uh, source of preserving, you know, areas that we, you know, that we love. And I think that, you know, if I can send someone home from the shore with a positive experience out in the ocean, um, they're going to want to kind of hold on to that. You know, they're going to want to remember that experience the next time they get a choice to, you know, maybe not use a plastic bag or if I give them an opportunity to kind of connect something they choose in their daily life back to the experience they had in the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have dolphins swim by or they just had their first plunge past a wave, give them a way to connect back to that. Then we've served our purpose of, you know, inspiring people to test themselves athletically as well as protecting the ocean environment. Yeah. It makes you feel like you're, you're one of the creatures out there. Like, uh, you're one with the dolphins and the turtles and such uh, when you're out there swimming against the current with them. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When you see them laboring right next to you, so to speak. Yeah, and and to think they're in it 24-7. <laughs> yeah. You get to go home and relax on solid ground, and they get to they have to keep going. The um, uh, On a bunch of my past episodes, just recently, I've been talking about uh, finding – what do you do after – you find yourself. And the reason I started talking about it was uh, this guy, um, James, uh, the Iron Cowboy is his nickname. Yeah. And he did, uh, I did 50 and 50. Yeah, 50 Ironmans, 50 days, and 50 states. And then also another person that um, 
is off the triathlon radar, but did something even it might be even more amazing is uh, Scott Jurek just ran the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, he set the through course record. Yeah. Um, in fact, he uh, yeah Scott Jurek who has won Western States I don't know how many times. Um, you know because he's someone too who was a competitive top yeah. ultra distance runner and then went to the other extreme and just had this adventure on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, it was a start and finish line, but it was his personal pursuit, right? Yeah. It, and like, so what do you, the, the question I've been dealing with and trying to answer is, it, so like me doing this uh, ultra baby, right? So it's bigger than anything I've ever done before. Mm-hmm. And then the half of the, half of it is putting yourself up against something that you've, uh, that scares you and you might not be able to finish it. Right. So then you're out there and you've kind of depleted all your reserves. And this is adventure swimming. Like you're saying is a really good example, right? You don't really know what's going to happen. <laughs> Right. Because there's maybe no buoys and there's no finish line and you're just going. Right. And the um, what do you the the question is, is what do you do? People say when they finish something like that, they go, I really found myself out there. Okay, well, now you found yourself and you know what you're made of. You know, then what? Right. And uh, something I'm kind of zeroing in on is I think uh, I'm listening to this really good audio book and it's interviews with uh, Buddhist teachers and and Zen uh, experts and such that um, everybody's really care- careful not to call themselves a Zen master, you know, because that, <laughs> that kind of puts yourself up on a pedestal, you know. And um, but that the, the recurring theme with like 20 something, 24 different uh, interviews for almost an hour each time is it changes. Everything's always changing. And these people say, you know, you kind of think that you get things figured out how to do it but then you get cancer (laughs) you know or uh somebody in your family passes away or you lose a job or something you gotta so you never know like the like the ocean like it's always changing right so um having yourself kind of found what you're really made of is only good so far you know after after enlightenment chop wood right yeah and i think keep going for me i i I listen to that you know, a couple of those podcasts where you've been asking people that question. And I would say that for me, uh, I, I, I used a phrase earlier this summer in a, in a blog post that um, uh, what we do in the ocean, uh, what we do in the ocean makes us athletes. What we do for the ocean and for our communities makes us watermen or water women. And I think that for me, once I discovered part of myself, and I say part because it's constantly a, a, an evolving learning process, mm-hmm. I seem to try to give it away. Um, once I have this experience and I feel like I wasn't necessarily anything special, I just met the right people who awoken you know, this passion for this. So now a lot of what I do is, is try to share it. We run a program to get people with spinal cord injuries out in the open water prone paddling. And I love being out there so much, but I don't want to be the only person out there. So I would say that I kind of discovered this and much of what I do now when I'm not uh, out there on my own training is trying to give it away. Um, There's a quote from Jacques Cousteau that's on the back of my business card. It says, when one man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to live an extraordinary life, he has no right to keep it to himself. 
So mm -hmm. this feeling that when you get to do this really cool stuff, like what you're doing with the Ultra Baby, you know, we give it away. We share it. We open the door for someone else mm -hmm. to step through and discover their own version of the same thing. Yeah, that's really profound. And, and the uh, you're right. Like with uh, the Ultra Bay, for example, I just got an email this morning. Somebody asking me, you know, how to set up. He wants to. You know, how many people? How many people have emailed me and I give advice to you on how to do their own their own triathlon or whatever they want to do. You know, and he's asking like, how do I set up a you know, what's a good distance for a run loop, you know, if I'm doing yeah. like a fixed aid station. But no, like the, the most, the, the amazing thing about the ocean, and it was my first ever moment of, of waking up to how the world actually works, uh, it was uh, um, the ocean washes away what you did yesterday. It does not care. It is but it's not that it's it's not that it's heartless or careless. It's just on its own agenda. But unlike like the land, um, if you if you hack a trail through some woods, that trail is going to be there tomorrow, right? Right. But you paddle or whatever across across uh, out there in the surf zone, wherever you are in the water, it's gone. It's gone in in seconds. It's gone in minutes. The ocean is so alive that it consumes what you it eats what you did, and then you go back out tomorrow, and it's just as powerful or depending on the weather more powerful than the day before and yeah, it, it doesn't care what you did 10 years ago it doesn't care what you did a minute ago it's it's got the memory of a of a happy dog it's just constantly <laughs> like come on let's go let's go that's a really good analogy i tell yeah. people um that are trying to make the transition to you know swimming in the ocean or whatever that um i I preach kind of these three core principles for, for ocean athletes. It probably works for anybody and it's balance, power, and peace. Mm -hmm. And that the balance in the ocean is this dynamic balance. It's not like sitting on a, on a uh, teeter totter or a seesaw and you, you, you're balanced and that's it. The ocean, like you said, is always changing. It's this, you know, that, that balance point is changing all the time with the wave, the chop, the conditions from one day to the next, uh, you're getting bounced all over the place. So it's this dynamic sense of balance, knowing that everything that had you in balance a moment before could completely change with the next wave or the next cove that you go past, um, or the next day you head out and you've got to be able to roll with those changes and people that are not able to make those adjustments at the moment or from day to day are going to constantly feel like they're fighting the ocean and fighting yeah. uh, rather than working with it. Yeah, it's like the ocean's alive and it's so big that it doesn't care about what you... I'm not kind of repeating myself. It doesn't really care about what you did and then it puts you into perspective to not... to not. It's a really good dose of what you think or what you do or what you care about um, isn't in the scope of the earth that we live on. It's so it's so minor, so don't worry about it so much. You know, don't dwell on things. It, the very first uh, in, in Zen, there's a koans, right? These unanswerable questions, like what's the sound of a tree falling in the woods, or if a if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound, right? Right. And that was the very first one. Uh, I was I was uh, I was reading a book on this kind of stuff, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, so, like, if you find the, I didn't know this at the time, but your answer is kind of individual to yourself to this kind of stuff. Right. And at this time, this was 15 years ago or so, and I was, 
Uh, it was about 12 years ago. I was laid off from my job in California. So I had to move from San Diego back to Texas. And I was really depressed about it, you know, because I wasn't able to be at the ocean and stuff. And um, I went out to San Diego uh, for work or something like that. And I had been thinking about this question for about a month. And I'm like, well, the, the, the scientific answer is, well, of course it makes a sound if the tree falls in the woods, right? Well, I've got it. That's the, that's the answer. Like, why would there be any other answer? That's got to be it, you know? And then um, when I went out to, uh, uh, not La Jolla, Torrey Pines? Yeah, just north of La Jolla Cove. Yeah. yeah, and I'm up on the cliff. You can still walk down it, right, for people that don't know. It's, it's a big hillside that slopes down into the water. And I, I walk up, and I stand on top of there, and I see the ocean and the surf zone for the first time in, like, a year, right? And... I look down over the water and the ocean waves are breaking exactly the same as when I'd left. There's surfers in the lineup exactly like I, like they had when I, when I left and the waves were doing the exact same thing. And I, and I could tell, you know, that the ocean had been, been doing the same thing 24 seven since the day I left. And then it hit me. If a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> the ocean is constantly a tree falling in the woods and it doesn't care if it makes a sound or not. It's moving. It's alive. Let's go. Like quit worrying about yourself so much and whether or not you can hear the sound. It's right. just there. And it just changed my life. Like to think, wow, the world's bigger than me and my little problem. The ocean's alive and it's always there. It's always moving. And it didn't, it didn't wait for you to come back out here. It was going the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that uh, that it's whether it makes a sound and, and the fact that it's the answers unique to the individual. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's probably pretty much in, in line with that Zen thing. Your perspective, you know, as soon as you are part of that world, you know, your perspective changes and, and what you see and how you perceive it changes. Um, and that sound or not whether you see something or not depends upon where you're standing and where you are at that moment. And that answer changes. I mean, it's, it's always fluid. It's this flow, not nothing stationary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this was cool, man. What, what else you got going on besides the uh, race coming up? What's coming up after the Cooley gold? You got anything after that? Yeah, actually we are, uh, I think we mentioned, um, my wife actually, um, is a, uh, PhD, um, and her research is on mindfulness and neuroscience, uh, adolescent brain development. And her focus right now is on, on mindfulness meditation as a way to become more aware and for people with spinal cord injuries to um, kind of manage pain and where they are. And there's a lot of positive effects of a mindfulness meditation program. And wow. I've been incorporating that into a lot of my training, kind of learning from her. She's the smart one in the group. And we've done some joint presentations on mindfulness and the endurance athlete, the endurance mind and, and mindfulness practice to kind of manage these um, things that hit us, you know, mm -hmm. as training or in a race or training, whether it's a, your mind starts to spiral out of control when you're doing a 1500 meter time trial in the pool and you start becoming your own worst enemy. And what we're both doing is we are working with these even more diverse group of athletes, you know, with the ocean as our backdrop. So when I get back from Australia, I'll race and then I'll be down there for an extra month um, 
learning. It's almost like going to graduate school for me, you know, training with some of the best surf lifesavers. I train with the BMD Northcliffe uh, Surf Club, which is a reigning world and Australian championship surf club. And I learned so much just from being around these guys and seeing how they work with athletes and what they teach and how they structure stuff. And then I get to come back to the U.S. and fold all of that knowledge and those connections and information into what we do here. So, you know, Michelle and I both create these ways for people to connect to themselves and to the to the environment around them. So, uh, coming up for me, I come back from there just totally stoked and motivated to keep pushing myself and learning more about about the ocean. Yeah. Um, but then giving it away, you know, it, it's always an epiphany moment when I have experiences like this race ultimately will provide. And then we focus on our, our nonprofit work, which is, you know, impacting how people, you know, feel, think and act towards the oceans. And the way we do that, like we said, is getting people in We're we're expanding this program of getting uh, people with spinal cord injuries or physical challenges prone paddling and out into the ocean. In fact, I may be even coming over to Texas to do some stuff. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. And the surf lifesaving yeah. sport is really growing. I uh, worked for Red Bull this summer and was a technical advisor creating the first professional surf lifesaving event uh, on the East Coast in Atlantic City. That it, read, it was the Red Bull Surf and Rescue. And we're planning for next year. And you know, with the thought of, you know, how much bigger can we make this? So, um, both in what I'm doing professionally for, for groups like Red Bull and, and in my own life is trying to share with people all these different ways of being in the ocean. Um, if they choose to do triathlons or running or paddling or whatever, a lot of the lessons that we learn from being out in this dynamic environment, the ocean, how can that positively impact their chosen endurance pursuits, whether they're, whether there's a starting line in their future or whether just getting out there and doing something outside and taking on something they're afraid of, we want to remove the barriers so that anyone can experience that. Yeah, you were making me think, this is really interesting, you were making me think that, so the ocean is a reliable, kind of like I said, you know, I was away from it for a year or so, mm -hmm. came back and it's the exact same thing, it did not care, right? what I was doing in the, as an individual. So it's like a, it's like a, it's like a reliable, consistent environment that poses, if you have an expert like you, then you know how to be safe in it, right? So right. it, prov it provides a consistent and a stimulating challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And then you could take somebody that's facing problems, some, in some other uh, part of their life, right? Like you said, like a spinal cord injury or something like that. And you can say, okay, we're going to go to the ocean and we're going to try to, to go out there and, and uh, do some stuff. And um, then if you're mindful about it, you learn that you, you can take what you learn and transition it back to life that's a little bit more unpredictable, right? So you can say, you know, basically the ocean just throws waves at you over and over and over again, right? It doesn't care. It's not personal. That's, that's, I think that's what I'm trying to touch on here. It's not personal. And so you learn to handle the uh, adversarial conditions and then you go and you, and you watch, you train yourself how to respond correctly and thoughtfully and then you get better results, right? How to use the currents your way and to not fight waves too much, you know? And then you go back to your daily life 
And then when you're faced with somebody making a comment about you and, you know, out on the street or you have trouble, you know, getting something done or somebody's being rude or something like that, um, or you get an overcharge on your cell phone bill, (laughs) (laughs) right? From using too much data because you have no internet and you're like, nah, you know, it's not personal, you know, and you learn like, uh, like how, how to navigate the waters of life just better. Well, and, and mindfulness, and I've learned this you know, through my wife's research, mindfulness has a lot of different meanings in, in, uh-huh. social, you know, in, in today's context. You hear that word a lot, but the definition that, that she and I use is it's, it's non-judgmental, right. uh, real-time awareness. So right. you're, you're aware of the situation, but it's non-judgmental. It, it passes around you. Mm-hmm. And you know, like you said, there's no better medium to immerse yourself in for that than the ocean. You know, it's, you can't judge the wave or the jellyfish or the current, but you have to be aware of it. And, and like, you're exactly spot on that, you know, it, it gives you a chance to channel dealing with anger, fear, environments, because, you know, you're going to go back to the home you left. You're going to go back to the community. And, you know, whether you're, you know, a teenager and you're dealing with peer pressure or whatever, or an adult dealing with, you know, a tough coworker or something like that, how are you aware of the situation and then change the way you react to it? You know, non-judgmental, real-time awareness of what's going on around you. Yeah, and, and like, it's and with the ocean, you, you don't come back from being at the beach all day and go, that one stupid wave, I'm going to go find that wave for doing that to me and throwing me down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not personal, right? Right. It's like yeah. it was the ocean that did it. But what are you going to do? Go out and punch the wave? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you have to learn. Yeah, you, it, it forces you to learn. Um, yeah, self-control and mindfulness and that the world's bigger than you. And um, and but but if you do things um, and, and that's the nice thing, right? You can leave the ocean if it, when it gets to be too much, you come back in. Right. And then you're ready for another dose of it. You can go back out. Yeah. We spend a lot of time, you know, and, and safety is a big thing. And I, I train lifeguards. I'm, I'm an ocean lifeguard myself and a, a trainer for one of the beach patrols here. And, mm-hmm. you know, we give people the tools to be safe so they can make good decisions. We give them the knowledge base. And then, you know, with the experiences, they, they get wisdom to go along with that knowledge base. Yeah. How, do you apply, how do you apply what you know and when? Yeah. Very, very cool, man. Yeah. Oh, we we need to get uh can your wife be on a call sometime soon? Yes. And uh you know what? I'll have to send you a link. Um the mindfulness and the endurance mind lecture that we did at an endurance expo uh this past winter is actually on Vimeo. We have a channel, we actually recorded it. Yeah. Um so what I'll have to do is send you the link so you can listen to that. But uh she's a little bit uh sometimes she's a little bit more hesitant or she's a little bit more shy than I am. Um <laughs> But we love to do these things together to kind of co-present and share. And, and I think, uh, yeah, I can talk her into it. I think it'd make for a really fun conversation with the three of us. Yeah, the, uh, I could think like on the bike, a really good example, example, example of mindfulness would be um, when you're biking along and somebody passes you, you know, going faster than you. Mm-hmm. And then having the self-control to go, you know what, if I go that fast, I, uh, I'll blow up, you know, too soon. And then, um, and then remembering, you know, previous workouts and stuff like that. And then you say, okay, well, I just need to go be able to go my own pace. I mean, life is constantly throwing things at you that pull on your emotions and where you're not using your mind. 
and you start to spin out of control. And, and mindfulness meditation, you often come back to the breath. So like when that person passes you on the bike and then you go, I should go with them. Oh, wait, no, maybe I shouldn't. And oh, now they're passing me and they're going to take the Ironman spot. And, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go with them, but then I had that bad swim. So all of a sudden you're not thinking about yourself anymore. That one pass or that one yeah. thought has just spiraled. You're, so you've totally lost touch with where you are and what you need to do. Yeah, you're thinking about the swim two hours ago and you're thinking about the run finish line six hours from now <laughs> or yeah. eight or four, uh, God, however many hours, you know, and then, uh, and then, yeah, the one thing that you can go back to, if you remember this, this is one way I coach is I say, you know, it's kind of like commuter speed is a good Ironman pace. If yeah. you're huffing for air, because it goes back to the breath. If you're huffing for air, you're going too hard. So you go back to your breath and just go a nice, calm breathing pattern. And then yeah. that's what will win the day for you. That will be the best you at the end of the day, regardless of everybody else. Yeah, and I'm sure you experienced too. We yeah. probably spend a lot of our time teaching the athletes that we work with how to not be their own worst enemy. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> that is a perfect. That is so perfect. You, you just nailed it. Because that's what that in most in in a, a long distance sport, right? Where it's really you versus the clock. You can't control how much everybody else trained, right? Or yeah. or or how fast anybody else is going, right? You actually your worst enemy is yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think of all those times. Um, how many times did Mark Allen not win Kona before he broke through and yeah, beat six Dave times, Scott? I think six but, times. You know, bike mechanic problems, things that just happened, Mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't the competitors. He just, you know, something had to click, you know, for him. And with a lot of us, you know, and he's, you know, he would, I would hold him up as the example of probably the strongest mental athlete I've ever met or seen. Uh But, you know, it wasn't the other competitors. It was things just happening. And a lot of times, you know, for some of us, we create those things that just happen uh, or we get hung up on that stuff. Um, and yeah, you need to not be your own worst enemy. And when things happen, you, you move through it. Um, in lifeguard racing, you can turn the flag behind someone or in front of them. Mm-hmm. But if one wave comes up, all of a sudden the guy in last place who happened to be in the right spot can go into first. It's, there is so much about where you are and the luck of the wave. It's, it's the way surf lifesaving racing goes. Um, you're never out of it until your feet are on the bottom. And so what you want to do is you want to create the opportunities for that success to come at any time. Huh? Cool. Wow. We could talk about this all day. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So what we need to do is schedule another, another uh, call on down the road. Um, at least five at, years from now. Yeah, yeah, not five years from now. At least like right after the Cooley Gold, and you can yeah. tell us like what uh, mindfulness you use to to do the best that you can, right? Yeah, and you're going to be going through, you know, your ultra baby. I think, uh, you know, because the last year at the Cooley Gold, it was it was one of the first times I've been that afraid before an event, because I was going, I've never done this before. Yeah. You know, there's only four other Americans that have. There weren't a lot of people I could ask. You know, what's this going to be like? And, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. And, and I think you and I both, you know, during that weekend, we're going to be moving through a lot of unknowns. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Some, when I've done some bigger stuff that's bigger than I can comprehend because I haven't done it before, you know, 
the, I just look at the time and I go, can I do whatever it is for this amount of hours? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's the, that's the best you can wrap your mind around it. You know, it's just like, if I go really, really easy and really slow, yeah, I can do X like swim or whatever for um, so many hours and that's it. That's the best you can do. Yeah. Cause you and I have both done hundred mile runs and yeah. I don't know about you, but you know, the first time I was looking at doing a hundred miler, mine was up in Vermont. I'm like, Oh wow. Ouch. Yeah. I know. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I can go at the speed. It, it, it looks good on paper, but you know, you and I both know what's it like to watch the sunrise come up a second time and you're still <laughs> in the same race. Yeah. <laughs> That was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life to this date. This, yeah. I think this, uh, this, uh, this ultra baby might, might push that. Uh, it's not continuous, but I think on day three, I'm going to be kind of hurting pretty good. I think, yeah. you know, you're going to be, you're going to be thinking about it. I, I can imagine that you're not really going to turn your brain off. Even when you're sleeping, you've got that next day ahead of you. Uh, yeah. So you may be, you know, off the bike or take your shoes off, but it's going to be 24 seven, you know, 24 hours each day for those three days that you're going to be living this. But you know what? You just said something that I think is really powerful. I'm, I'm definitely going to remember it throughout the throughout the ordeal is don't be your own worst enemy because there's so much that happens that's actually not out there on the swim, bike, and run. Um, yeah. it's day one, as soon as you're done, what do you do, right? That makes all the difference on day two. Um, yeah. What do you eat? How soon do you eat? When do you go to bed? You know, you got to charge up all your devices. You got to, you know, not drink any beer, for example, to celebrate day one. Would be, you know, like, do you have a beer? Was it that much fun? You know, you're compromising day two if you start doing that kind of stuff. You know, um, uh, all kinds of things. Well, and you've talked about too, you know, you kind of like when we, you know, when you bonk in a long race and you slow down, you walk through it, you don't it's hard to pinpoint exactly when you move through it, when you got that second wind or when you move past the bonk. But in most cases, if you keep moving forward, it's, it's going to get better. You know, I mean, sometimes it doesn't, but for most of us, we go through highs, we go through lows and that next high might be just one step away. It just might be that next step where all of a sudden it clicks and you're back on again and you're just dialed. You I never know when that's going to happen, but you got to set yourself up for it. There was I did a 50-miler trail run one time where I bonked on mile 30 or something like that. Bad. I thought I was going to have I called Emily and said I think I'm going to have to DNF. Um, and she said, "Well, just keep going." <laughs> and I said, "I can do that because I'm kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere else but, you know, straight." And uh and you know what? It was somewhere between six and ten or eleven. I don't know why I got the number eleven stuck in my head, but about probably about eleven miles later of kind of run walking painfully, that all of a sudden I felt so good that I was able to run the rest of it. Um, well, it sounds like your wife and mine have the same practice. My wife will tell me, "Take ten more strokes. You can take ten more strokes, and then talk to me about how you feel." And she may do that to me for two miles, and I'm always just taking ten more strokes. But, you know, she's, you know, she is wiser than I am. She's like, you can do 10 more strokes. Does she ride out in the kayak next to you while you're out swimming and stuff? On almost every long distance adventure swim or race, she's always been, always been with me. And a few times when she hasn't been, um, she's been next to me for so long, I can literally see her in my, you know, see her in my head. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember I did a, a race around an island in Alaska, a swim race. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was, it was a race. It was an eight and a half mile race around this island in Ketchikan. And 
I was chasing the guy in the lead. And, you know, I was swimming all over the place because I was just watching him and not paying attention to everything else. My wife's on the kayak next to me. She's, she finally yells at me and she says, stop following him and stay with me. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Because Quit being a, your own worst enemy, right? My own following worst, the other guy. She could see further ahead. She could see the current. She could see the line we needed to take. And I followed her. And sure enough, I trusted her, followed her, and ended up winning. You know, beat the guy. Yeah. If I'd been you know, just listening to myself, I would have been chasing this guy all over the inner passage. But, you know, Michelle's like, stay with me, follow me. And sure enough, we, you know, we won the race. Um, So having her, you know, there to, you know, either literally when I can or virtually to say, stay with me, do this and we'll, we'll be fine is always a, a good thing to play over in my head. How much neoprene did you have to wear for this thing? I was no wetsuit. No wetsuit in Alaska? Yeah. Uh, water was 54. We had orcas swim past. Oh. That's yeah. that's one of my worst fears. <laughs> Orca. When you think there's sharks, there's orcas. <laughs> yeah. Well, I figured I was safe. I wasn't in SeaWorld, so you know, yeah. I was, they weren't going to do anything. Yeah. yeah, they'd leave you alone, hopefully. I've never seen... Has, has an orca ever attacked a human? I don't think they ever have. In the wild? Never. No. That's weird. Never in the wild. Yeah, I... Yeah. I've had orcas in the water with me on three occasions, uh, at least two, uh, once in Monterey Bay and up in Alaska. That's amazing. I've never seen one in the wild. I can't wait someday to see one. Yeah. Big dorsal fence. Big. It's a good yeah. wake call for your support crew in the kayak when they see a dorsal fence six feet high. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. That's amazing. Well, thanks, Bruckner. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do we find you online to so everybody can follow you? Uh, it's the good thing with having a unique name is I'm easy to find. So uh, BrucknerChase.com. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's poking around South Jersey or visiting this way and they want to hit us up in the water, uh, OCSwimClub.org. So uh, BrucknerChase.com uh, is the nonprofit and, and stuff that I do as an athlete and activist. And then OCSwimClub.org is what we do in the community here to get people in the water. Awesome, man. Well, you got me amped. I want to go swim now. Yeah, we got, we got to get in the water. I got to get you. I've got two surf skis. Um, if you're ever on this, we, we got to find some time. It happens. Uh, I was we'll, just in North Carolina just not too long ago. Yeah, you will. I've got, uh, I've got eight paddle boards, two surf skis. Oh, uh, we would we would have a blast in the water. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah, it would be cool for me to sign up for some kind of swim event up there and then come do it. Yeah, and actually, we are uh, we did our first one last weekend. We're putting on this Legion of Ocean Heroes uh-huh. uh, Surf Life Saving Sports Festival, where we bring together all these diverse ocean athletes that we know our our master swimmers, triathletes, professional lifeguards, as well as our uh, spinal cord injured athletes. And we, uh, it's like a surf life-saving carnival where there's short swims, paddle boards, relays, same sort of stuff I do as a, a lifeguard racer, you know, at U.S. lifeguard racing. But we do it as kind of like for civilians. And, and we're going to do, um, our next one's going to be the weekend before Memorial Day. Um, mm-hmm. And then we'll do a second one the weekend after Labor Day. It's kind of this celebration, community celebration of being in the ocean and trying something new that's, um, you know, not long distance, but you're working with people and it's a great sort of, uh, it's got a great vibe to it. Maybe that's a good time to come up. Yeah. Sounds like it. 
cool. All right, man. Stay safe oh, out there. Absolutely. And uh, if I don't talk to you beforehand, I'm sure we'll probably social media, but uh, I'm looking forward to following the stories as you and I are both on our final run-up for training for these big weekends. So yeah. we're on parallel paths right now. I know. It's going to be so cool. All right, everybody. <laughs> Take try care. to follow. I will see you in the water. Yeah, try to follow me and Bruckner and Ironman Hawaii Kona all yeah, at it's once. Been a, it's been a good time to be out on the road, in the ocean, or on the couch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks, man. All right, take care, man. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. All right. Thank you, Bruckner. And also, after we got off the air, we talked a little bit more and said, "Man, we got to hang out together because we are totally on the same track." in life of trying to do the best we can to help others, but also uh, trying to do competition, you know, to make ourselves feel better while we're helping others and trying to, I'm a big uh, hippie environmentalist at heart. Um, All the outdoors camping that I did and uh, led me to getting uh, environmental science degrees and forestry and stuff like that. And um, even though I work on computers, um, my heart and soul is in saving the outdoors and the planet and trying to be healthy. And, um, yeah, Bruckner and I definitely see eye to eye and also with the mindful stuff mixed in. Yeah, I was super stoked to get him on the air. So we're going to have him back on and we'll, we'll, uh, zoom in on some, uh, mindfulness stuff and bring that to you guys. All right. Speaking of all that, we should talk a little bit about some Zen and to make sure I'm on track, let me make sure this thing's recording real quick because sometimes it doesn't and... I want to make sure I bring you the good stuff. All right. I said at the beginning of the show, we're going to talk about Zen to win. And when I was, uh, when I was on my flight to back and forth, actually to uh, Boston and it was five different uh, individual flights (laughs) and luggage and all uh, meeting gates without getting kicked off planes and running and and all kinds of elbowing and stuff to get where we needed to go. Um, and no internet, I downloaded and listened to a bunch of different Zen podcasts, uh, audiobooks by Alan Watts, which is fantastic stuff. You're It is a great book. And I uh, did lots of contemplation and thinking and, and uh, wanted to share some really cool stuff with you. So basically, you want to be happy, right? That is the pinnacle of everything. You just want to be happy. Well, if you've noticed, people are happy when they're winning at the game of life. Now, everybody's happiness is relative, and it has to do with who, like what kind of family you were brought up in, the amount of money they had, the neighborhood, the city, the part of the world. You know, that kind of trains you, and there's not much you can really do about it after a while, of what is success and what is happiness. So if you grow up in a really rich family and then you're not rich, you somehow feel like uh, maybe you failed or something like that. That's like the standard that they, that's been ingrained in you. But let's say you grew up in a really poor family. All you got to do is be richer than them and you're a success. <laughs> and the, uh, there's uh, villages all over the world where people are super happy, even though they have no internet, no TV, no healthcare, you know, their lifespan might be kind of short, but they're super happy when they're interviewed. Um, and surveyed is what I mean. And you know why? And it's because given the situation that they're in, they're winning. Uh, they have things kind of figured out and their system works. And they're 
they're doing better than people on the other side of town, right? A really great way to be miserable is to um, uh, be surrounded by people that are doing better than you. And, and that's, you know, you could be a millionaire, but you're surrounded by uh, billionaires and all of a sudden you feel like a failure. And, you know, Einstein, everybody that knows anything talks about, you know, everything is relative, right? Um, because, you know, you got your speed in the car right now. Well, you're also on the earth moving and like, it just goes on and on. Like everything is relative and you can't escape from it. And you ought to think that way about how everything works. So everybody's game is, is winning, Right? And that's what makes you feel happy. That's how we're wired. And that's how it keeps you moving. That's the only way the human body and the mind and the emotional system you know, can work. Is it, it has to work relativity, relatively. And then also it works in the now. So you, you know, whether if you won something a while ago, well, after a while it kind of goes away, right? And if you, you're headed towards winning something in the future, well, still, that's not now. So it's not as great a feeling uh, someday. You know, I tell Kyle he can have an Xbox someday. Well, <laughs> I'm like, why are, you, why are you mad, man? I just told you you're going to have an Xbox, you know, like a month or two from now for your birthday. And he's like, I want it now, you know. That makes him just want it more, right? So it has to do with feeling like you're winning now, and that will make you happy. And a really cool thing, and uh, Scott Adams talked a lot about this in his book uh, about systems, um, Winning the in the now has a lot to do with we as humans we are systems and pattern machines we pick up on patterns really really quickly and we do it so we can kind of predict the future so that we don't uh, you know if we notice that the same creepy guy that uh, mugs people is on this one street corner two days in a row, guess where we don't go on that third day? We don't go there, right? For our own safety. So, um, there's, you know, this is a trail that lions like to walk down. Well, then we don't go down it because that'll probably be where a lion will be. And it's how we've learned to survive, right? So we, we're always looking for patterns all the time, ever since that we're babies and we love it. We love symmetry and we love patterns because it helps us. Once we see a pattern that works, we feel like we're right, right? And in a world of uncertainty, to feel like you're right makes you um, feel good about yourself. And you'll notice this like on internet forums, people will post their opinion on something. So, and also people take bets on things. Uh, people propose who's going to win Kona, who's going to win the next NFL game, right? To put it out there, because if they win, then they're right. And that means that they've got something figured out in the world and there's less uncertainty, right? Okay, well, oh my gosh, I got a fire truck, like literally right behind me. <laughs> Hope they don't fire up the big diesel engine on this thing. But anyway, the, uh, which, what works is a system, right? Because I said we're system and pattern machines. What works is a system that makes you right most of the time for the things that matter uh, right now, right? That's the things you ought to focus on. And also, it's a little bit important for you to win at being right uh, effortlessly because we're also machines that love efficiency. And I want to 
mention something. Kai, my 10-year-old, when he's plays, he plays this really cool video game on an iPhone that goes pretty fast, and it's called Smashy Road, and uh, you drive a car around, and, and it's really easy to lose. So the... Um, and you're trying to steer left and right, left and right, and you're trying to do it fast so that you don't get caught by the cops. And if you make a wrong move, the cops pretty much are going to guarantee to catch you, right? Well, when you first start playing this game, you turn left and right all the time. The game's moving really fast, and you only make it a few seconds, you know. And uh, then you, you overdo it. You press left and right and left and right and left and right a whole lot on the phone screen. And uh, you get a little bit better at it. And then the other day, I was watching Kai play. Kai told me he got... Um, six stars, which means he played for like a minute and a half or I don't know, like crazy long without getting killed. And I watched him play and I noticed something that you will all notice in something with people that are succeeding really well. He pushed the buttons on the phone far less frequently, less, much, much less than ever before, right? He quit interfering with where the car was going and only press the buttons when he needed to. And that efficiency led to less uh, fretting and less unnecessary movement and it let the game play more smoothly and he uh, could play longer without dying in this, in this game. That's really important. Okay, so the Zen part is to sit down and say, what is today's game? Right? What is something today, now, you could do it today, you could do it for the next few hours, whatever you want, and say, what are the things that if I, if I win at these things today, I will feel like I'm doing better than either my competition or better than previous me? It's kind of up to you, you know, better than other people, better than, man, my, I expected, you know, whatever, it could be versus other people or versus yourself or just kind of versus your standard. What's going to get you ahead if you get these few things done? And you don't want too many things. You just want a few things. And the, um, so like for me, I wrote down uh, a few things like uh, getting in a bike workout because it's always a struggle to get on my bike. Um, I had to get into work and knock out some work projects really quick. I had to do some review stuff. I had to send out some Hornet juice orders that I was behind on because of my vacation to Salem. And, um, actually I had to record this podcast today and these are things that if I get done, then, um, oh, I had to document that I got a new heart rate strap because my other one broke because I like to keep track of these things. If, if I get these things done, then I'll feel like I'm actually winning, right? And the craziest thing is it's not just getting those done, but it's coming up with a system, right? It's coming up with a pattern of, uh, you know, twice a day I check my Hornet juice orders, you know, at uh, 6 a.m. and 8 p.m., right? And it just works. It works every single time. you got a pattern that works. Having a pattern, having a system that beats the things so that you're winning, beats your obstacles in life so that you're winning allows you to start doing it effortlessly, like Kai playing that video game. It allows you to start uh, just graciously moving through life, and all your big problems are kind of handled because of systems that you set up that you are right about. And it feels amazing, absolutely amazing. 
uh, because now you're walking on top of the world. You're doing better than uh, your competition. You're doing better than the obstacles that are in your life coming in front of you. And it, the fact that it's a system makes it efficient and that allows it to be zen because it allows you to free up uh, attention and space to do it well, right? Because you can actually enjoy it now. And you, oh man, seeing things go into place makes you feel good. You know, when you got the, you got your socks and you put them in your sock drawer and you got your underwear and you put it in your underwear drawer and you got uh, enough coat hangers to hang up your shirt and you start putting things away, doesn't that make you feel good? It's because you've got a system, right? Well, as your big things in life that you've decided that are important today, as you start putting them in the places where you know they belong and you knock them out one after another with a system, it just starts feeling really, really, really good. And then also, there's another small Zen part I want to talk about. Being faced with a problem and not knowing what to do about it. There is a temporary feeling of fear. It's a black hole where you don't know the answer. And that not knowing the answer um, can stress you out and then not knowing... Uh, leads you, if you're not careful, it leads you to frantic responses to try to fill in the gaps, right? So uh, you get an email from your boss that he wants to have an important meeting with you um, in one hour. No, let's say later today. (laughs) You get an email at 9 saying he's got an important meeting with you um, at uh, 3 p.m. It's urgent and bring your documents from uh, HR (laughs) or that project that you know you're like way behind on, right? Okay, well, now you're like, crap, what do I do? I don't have the answers. Um, I don't have a system. You know, I don't, I don't have anything to uh, deal with this. It's, you start feeling fear, your ego, like your world may end, right? Because your ego is built up around the world that you've constructed. And you're like, oh man, I might lose my job. What's going on? Uh, and then you start wasting energy and you start fretting and you start making poor choices. Like say you're new to a video game and you start hitting all the buttons because you don't know what to do, right? Instead of just graciously doing nothing and not reacting and not act, not acting, uh, uh, excessively and wasting energy and, and start making poor choices. Um, and that, that time is where, uh, I think it's Keith McLeod, um, of, uh, unfettered mind, I think is the podcast. Anyway, it's a really great talk on, um, being okay with not responding to, um, to and being okay with sitting in the not knowing as the first step, right? Just be like, and realizing that that's what that is, that you've just been presented with something uh, where you don't know uh, the answer, right? And going, oh, crap. So you have some choices, right? Uh, one choice is, uh, can I do anything about this? Yes or no? If no, then strongly think about, you know, well, just not doing anything and thinking about something else. Um, but not running in fear from it. Another one that is a great answer is, is this something new that I can categorize with a system 
Because if I come up with a system of dealing with this problem, if this problem ever happens again, right? Is this something that could happen again? If I can come up with a system for dealing with this, oh my gosh, I'm going to feel like winning, right? So uh, you move to a new city and somebody's like, you got to go see this. And another person goes, you got to go see this, got to go see this. Well, you're overwhelmed with all these choices. Like, what do I do with all these things I need to go see and these restaurants I need to go to and these parks I need to bike at and run at? And all that? Well, you create a list of places that people are telling you to go to. Now you've got a place to dump your uh, inputs coming in, right? Now you got a system and you feel so good, right? You're taking something that's out of your control and that you can't handle and now you're kind of systemizing it, right? So uh, your boss sends you an email and um, you could come up with a system that in your life, anytime you get one of these emails um, where they're scary and you're not sure what's going on, that you reply back with... um, can you give me some more information on the meeting so I'm better prepared, right? And that's your standard answer. And and then when the boss replies back and goes, yeah, we're just going to talk about benefits for whatever, then you're like, ah, oh, right? Or if they uh, say, just bring yourself, right? Well, then, and you still get no better response, then you're like, well, I asked the question and that's my system. So I did the best that I could, right? And then now you feel better because you've kind of rationalized and reframed stuff into something that... Um, at least you've tried your best with your system, right? That works. Woo! Okay, so uh, rewind that and listen to that a few times. And um, yeah, so basically sit down, take the time to review what's important so that you win in a day. And it's fluid and it's different for other people because everything's relative. And then try to come up with systems to handle those things that... Um, make you uh, win. So like I have a system for getting on the bike. I have a list. If I do uh, a big thing for me today is getting a bike ride. Well, then I got, I've got a list that I can check through water, air tires, grab my helmet, bike computer, you know, so I don't forget anything. So I don't get on the bike and then start to try to bike and then feel like a failure. Cause I messed up something. Right. And, uh, um, but if I check through my system of how I'm going to bike, well then everything just works fluidly or pretty fluidly most of the time and my bike gets done and then I feel like a winner and I'm like, ah, this is really, really good stuff. Okay, that was your Zen moment for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, let's move on with uh, questions and donations to the show. Oh, somebody asked, um, uh, they want to follow up on Kai's wheels about these wheels for Kai on his bike, these Chinese carbon wheels. They're holding up, but he's really not riding his bike that much. He did get third at overall in his age group in a triathlon um, on those wheels, which I think had a lot to do with it because they're super light and fast. Uh, but we'll have more on the wheels uh, on down the road. And here we go. We've got questions and donations. Katie sent in an email. Oh, this is a little bit... Um, about Hornet Juice and let's see the Garmin 920 XT Sleep Function. Um, yes, she could look it up in a manual, but she'd love to hear my opinion of it and any tips. I'm assuming I'd have to sleep with it on my wrist, which may take some time getting used to. Also, I have plantar in my left foot. Ugh, I have that right now, bad too. Uh, so keep me posted on your progress. I'm trying to train for it with the New York Marathon, which has been dicey after much treatment, including physical therapy. I found that I get the most relief from my sports when my sports masseuse attacks my tight legs and 
that uh, rolling on it with a spiky ball that looks like a dog toy. Thanks for all that you do. I'm a longtime listener. I'm the one who runs with my thumbs up like your dad said. <laughs> Katie. Yeah, my dad taught me running with him as a kid. Uh, run with your thumbs pointed up and it helps you breathe better and not get side stitches somehow. But anyway, the um, it really teaches you not to um, clench your hands, which clenches your arms, which clenches your body, which has you uh, not breathing as well. Um, anyway, she was asking about the Garmin 920 uh, sleep function. Uh, does it record your sleep? Yes, it does. It's got a kind of like a Fitbit in it, and um, it works really, really well. So with the Garmin 920, you get a swim, bike, run watch, and also a fitness tracker with a sleep tracker built in it, which is kick ass because sleep is actually one of your biggest limiters. I'd say after water, then sleep. And then overtraining. Uh, Ken P wrote in and says, I'm a huge fan of all things Zen and most things triathlon. So I love your show. I want to say that I just finished your last podcast and was debating on listening to another or trying to catch up on Rich Roll's show. Then I saw the title of episode 597, Iron Man Texas 2015, and the Tao Te Ching. <laughs> It's a very important book, by the way. I thought, well, I'm not really interested in the Ironman Tech stuff, but I love the Dow. I'll just listen to that. And assuming it would be at the beginning. As fate would have it, it was at the end. <laughs> hey, man, podcast, dude. Fast forward until you get... Uh, well, gosh, it is trying to... Because I mix stuff up so much. It's hard to tell when I'm talking about the Tao Te Ching and the and Ironman. Uh, as fate would have it, it was at the end. And I'm glad it was. I really enjoyed your recap of the race. Though now I really want to do another Ironman. Exclamation point. Also, on the subject of the Dow, check out Taoist Lecture Series by Danielle uh, Bolelli. B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Danielle, and it's D-A-N-I-E-L-E, Bolelli.com. Uh, download, uh, slash download, slash Taoist, which is with a T, Taoist, dash lectures. Uh, he also put up a really awesome podcast on the Zen Monk uh, IQ Sojun. Cool, I need to check that out. Uh, finally, I noticed you're into Whizbang computer techie stuff. Me too. Trafon and Whizbang techie must go together like coffee and butter. <laughs> I wrote a few thoughts about it too. Uh, check it out if you have a minute at pittsburghrunner.com slash blog slash uh, this entry is called Add Guilty to Your Training Plan. I agree. And by the way, that reminds me, oh, and he says, uh, thanks for all you do and keep the rubber side down, exclamation point. Um, I got, I did a blood test for work and my results came back with a, uh, fasting blood sugar of 70, which is awesome. Uh, my HDL could be a little bit higher and that's the, that's the healthy blood fat, uh, blood cholesterol. Um, uh, uh LDLs were fine and I think everything else was just awesome. And, um, I think my HDL was 52 and they wanted it to be like 60 or above or something like that. But it was still really good. My overall cholesterol was like 147 or something like that. Um, and what I did was I quit listening to podcasts that talk about um, food <laughs> and off the beaten path food uh, e eating methods. And I... Uh, started adding more carbs back into my diet um, and also food timing was important so more carbs during and after workouts and uh, my blood sugar in spite of it being more carbs actually went down and 
the uh, the theory is that the um, if you don't eat enough carbs and your body starts digesting itself, it's digesting itself all the time. So as it's eat, tearing apart your body muscle and stuff like that, that is being turned into fuel, which is turned into blood sugar, which is in your bloodstream uh, far later than you would uh, than should be uh, uh, when you haven't eaten. So even though you haven't eaten for a while, your body's tearing it apart because it's hungry and it's putting blood sugar in your bloodstream for your body to um, use for fuel. And I corrected it by eating more carbs, not less. <laughs> Which is kind of counterintuitive to all the wacky, wonky, eat high fat, low carb stuff that's going on out there. And, you know, I finally just got sick of it and said, um, I'm just not going to listen. Because I noticed if I listen to a podcast where they're like, you need to put butter in your coffee and like all this other stuff and don't, don't eat carbs, then I kind of start and I got a few people on there that are like, yeah, it worked for me. And uh, then I start going, well, maybe I could do that, you know, and then I, and then I ended up doing it, uh, just by listening to it. So I'm like, you know what? Turn all that crap off. Um, not same podcast, der, we'll have episodes about it or in some, you know, not about it. So if it's not about it and it's about, I don't know, intervals or something like that, I said, I'll listen to that. But if it's about, Hey, we need to talk about low carb, high fat. I'm like, like, Bleh. that doesn't work for ultra distance triathlon. <laughs> and then, Oh, and then, uh, I want, uh, eating uh, whole foods as much as possible, as much as possible, but adding in treats that are carby uh, as needed. So a sugary cookie here, you know, or whatever, no big deal. And then um, making sure I'm doing my workouts well fueled. And uh, also on a lot of weightlifting blogs, uh, it'll be funny that people talk about diet, nutrition, and they always talk about macros. And I think macros are actually the most important thing. Making sure that you're getting in the right or close to right ratios of carbs, fat, and protein. You're like, where's my protein? Where's my fat? Where's my carbs, right? And kind of, if you simplify nutrition down into those things and try to get healthy versions of those, but those things first. So it's macros first, and then healthy versions of those macros second, right? Because you need the macros first. You know, whether the fat's healthy or not, well, let's say the protein. Let's say whether the protein's healthy or not, comes after whether or not you've got protein or not. So get your protein first. Now try to make it as healthy as you can and uh, or your carbs or whatever it is. And then also I strongly consider uh, fiber the hidden macro because it's fat, protein, carbs. But man, dude, for everything to flow well, you need fiber in there too. And then uh, sleep and then water <laughs> and coffee. Okay, that was a long email. Uh, more donations to the show. Han Chu. James Godak, Jonathan Woodman, and Richard Stewart, Connor Sanders, Sean. He's got an email in here. Hey, Brett, first let me start off by saying how much I love the Hornet juice. We'll talk about that at the end here. Uh, makes me sweat like crazy, which is odd. <laughs> I don't know why it would make you sweat. Um, but I can absolutely feel the difference. Even if it's 100% placebo effect, it still works! Exclamation point. Okay, I want to say something about that. Placebo effect is even better than actual effect because the uh, at least there's no side effects, right? Um, if, if a sugar pill, a tiny little sugar pill, makes you train harder, dude, that's the best kind of thing because there's no doping, there's no side effect drugs are there or anything, you know? So, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, dude, watching triathlon videos on YouTube makes me bike harder. So that's the best kind of drug right there. Um, so, uh, let's see, I've been giving it, 
getting out to all my buddies, telling them where to buy it, which I need to stop because now I'm down to only a couple of packs and I need to reorder, exclamation point. Um, I have a question for, for you though regarding nutrition. I did my first triathlon past weekend and it was a success, exclamation point. I got first in my age group, 30 to 39. So that's pretty good, dude. That's really, that's, that's really good. Uh, and 10th overall. Wow. First triathlon. Watch out for this guy. Uh, however, during the transitions, I felt super lightheaded. And then on the run, I had a wickedly sloshy stomach. Yep. I can tell you already what happened. And then he says, I ate a bagel with cream cheese and a cliff bar approximately an hour and 45 minutes before the start. And I had hornet juice about 45 minutes prior to the start. Okay. Any tips on how to get rid of the lightheadedness and sloshy stomach in the future? Yeah, the lightheadedness comes from you got too much stuff in your stomach and too much of the wrong stuff in your stomach and your uh, body is fighting itself uh, for your brain is fighting your muscles for those uh, for the blood sugar generated by that and um, and because your stomach is uh, well and it's fighting your stomach so your stomach is trying to digest this stuff and it can't because the blood flow is not at the stomach um, it's going to the muscles and because now everything's competing with that now it can't go to the brain and now you're lightheaded and now you're getting low lightheadedness is low blood sugar and um now the sloshy stomach is now your stomach stuck with stuff in it that's not going anywhere and uh and you're drinking water on top of that and so now it's just kind of sloshing around so this is the cure one uh hour and 45 minutes is, the standard is two hours before exercising and uh, two hours before exercising should still be more carbs and uh, not fat and uh, very light on the protein. So um, the cream cheese was a mistake. The bagel might have been a mistake if it was a whole wheat bagel. So like a really good thing to eat two hours out from a, from a race is a power bar. Um, it's just straight carbs. It's solid, so it'll take a little while to digest. But... Um, Oh yeah, and your Cliff Bar. Cliff Bars have a so your cream cheese has a lot of fat in it. It's probably all fat. And then your Cliff Bar has actually has a lot of fat in it. By the way, I love Cliff Bars, and they have a lot of fat. And your um, your stomach can't digest those very fast at all. So it's taking resources away from your body, and also clogging up your guts to uh, try to digest that stuff. So it's messing you up, dude. So again, Power Bar, uh, maybe some Gatorade, not too much. Because if you eat too much sugary stuff before a race, um, then you have a blood spike, blood sugar spike, and then a blood sugar crash. And then um, you're starting off uh, in the negative as well. So just a touch of that kind of stuff. And um, protein, hornet juice is really good because it's only got a little bit of, it's only a little bit of protein and uh, you mix it with water. And so your body should digest that pretty, pretty well. So, um and that's your answer, dude. Okay, uh, Matthew Heinz sent in donation. Brian Kemper, Todd Nelson, Jason Drury, Dan Machia, Jessica Woodruff, Todd Endicott, Matthew Froese, Allison Frutos, and Alex Bromage, who I coach up there in Sweden. 
is they're all donors to the show. All right, so let's cover uh, sponsors and donations. Um, you can support Zen and Yard of Triathlon. If you like the uh, tips and everything that I'm giving you, consider a donation to the show. It helps keep the show on the air. You can do a recurring donation on the left-hand side of the podcast, zentriathlon.com. You go there. That's the show page where I put show notes and links and stuff like that. The show takes a ton of work and time to make, and I love doing it, and... Uh, donations uh, show your support that uh, I'm doing it right and that you like it and it's nice so um, there's recurring or one-time donations on PayPal on the uh, left-hand side which I love super cool Hornet juice on the right-hand side if you order Hornet juice then you get a kick-ass product that I just constantly get emails about that um, helps you run more on fat burning uh, than just pure carbs, your body's fat reserves. It's like diesel power. It's made from the Japanese killer hornet saliva. <laughs> no joke. It's crazy, and it's so cool because you get to share it with your friends, and like it's a it's a real uh, it's a real treat, man. It's cool stuff, and then you're helping yourself while helping support the show, which is really nice. And that's Hornet Juice. That's on the right hand side, and then also I need to give a couple of shouts outs. To some sponsors, uh, Chris Haig Racing. Uh, Chris Haig is a big-time supporter of Zen and Yard Triathlon. Dude is super cool, super nice, super smart, super sharp, just super all the way around. Um, he's really got the pedigree of a great coach, and I love supporting other great coaches and having everybody kick ass in this sport. So I want you to check him out, Chris Haig Racing. And he ran track for University of South at Sawani. He uh, could have gone pro, I think. And um, he raced against me and beat the crap out of me several times. And the dude is just awesome and a great attitude. So check him out. And then lastly, um, well, Sound Probiotics, by the way. Sound Probiotics is helping sponsor the uh, Ultra Baby, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And also Amrita Bars. Amrita Bars are my go-to fuel. I had half a one this morning, half a one after my bike workout. 15% off purchases at amritahealthfoods.com. And Amrita is A-M-R-I-T-A. 15% off with discount code ZEN, all capital letters. So they're bars, and they also have uh, cycling uh, and triathlon kits and running shirts and stuff. Um, And they're date-based, all organic, all vegan, super-duper good stuff. Uh, No nuts in them. Uh, They have seeds instead. So if you have a nut allergy, they're awesome. And I love eating Amrita stuff. And I love wearing their stuff. Stuff looks super cool. Okay. I think that's enough. Um, Okay, let's go ahead and get into the training log. Uh, The Ultra Baby's coming up, doing a self-supported Ultraman, which is a 6.2 mile swim and then a 90 mile bike ride day one. Day two is a 172 mile bike ride Day three is a double marathon, 52 miles, 52.4 miles of running all three days in a row. And man, it's freaking hard. And the training is about killing me. I've realized I'm about as fit as I can get. And now it's just uh, minimizing problems. And we're going to get all into that with the uh, training log. And things are looking good. They're looking really, really good. Um, now I'm just kind of neaten up, neatening up things, uh, making sure uh, there's no crises. Uh, there was word that the dam at the lake was going to break, and they're dropping water at the dam. So i got to stay on top of that. Uh, you know, getting kayaks. Uh, Tri-Boomer is going to come down and help crew. 
Um, you know, I've got to make sure that the route is safe. I've had people drop out, so it's it's turning out to be just me doing the entire thing and people doing other people doing parts of it. And I uh, I do not blame people for that. <laughs> Ultramans are freaking crazy, man. and the closer I get to it, the, the more scared I'm getting, and the more I'm realizing who I really am, which we talk a lot about on this show. I'm peeling back the layers and seeing what I can actually get done versus what I think I can get done, which is cool, man. It's been a great adventure. So um, if we do not get another show out between now and then, and this is the last episode before the Ultra Baby... The Ultra Baby will be fantastic. We'll have lots of audio from doing the show, so stay tuned for that. All right, let's go ahead and get started with the training log. Here we go. You are entering the Zentrite training log zone. Kuneli. Hi, everybody. My name is Brett. I'm a triathlete. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But, Joe, we've been friends for years. Hey. We all make mistakes. Come on, dudes, let's go exercise! Exercise! I'm gonna do sit-ups till I poop myself! Alright, welcome to a new Draining Log. Or, as I like to call it, another episode of Zen and the Art of Where Is My Shit? (laughs) Where has Emily put my triathlon training stuff now? Oh, if you're new to Zen and Yard of Triathlon, uh, we have a recurring theme here on the show, uh, and I think every triathlete has this problem, is where has my significant other, my SO, uh, put my training gear, and now I'm ready to train and I can't find uh, my jogging shorts, my goggles, my bike pump, uh, I don't know, whatever, you know, my helmet, and um, yeah, I think a lot of us... Uh, live this problem. Don't deal with it. Live it. And it's half our own fault because if we put stuff back where uh, it should go, then somebody else wouldn't put it somewhere else. But some of us have a problem with, uh, in spite of our best efforts, stuff gets put uh, in a different place, no matter how hard you try to do things right. And that's what we have today. I drive all the way across town and to go swim to an even farther pool away farther away pool than uh, I usually go to to go swim because it's evening it's not my morning pool and I get here and then I turn to the back seat of my car because on every episode of Zen Try I always say keep your swim stuff in your car just keep it in your car and then you'll never be missing it and you can go swim without it being a problem so I reach in the back seat and there's no swim bag. And I'm like, what the F? <laughs> Start looking around. And Emily took my car on a road trip this weekend. And Emily loves to clean out everything all the time. She just takes everything out of everything and puts everything away somewhere else. And so for no reason whatsoever, she took my swim bag out of my car <laughs> and put it in the house somewhere. And I'm like, so I text her and I go, without, without, I did not do in all caps, I restrained myself. Where is my swim bag? Now that I've driven, and then to myself, uh, now that I've driven all the way across town in half an hour to get to the uh, pool. Oh, it's more like 20, 15, 20 minutes. And uh, she calls me. And Emily's awesome, by the way. 
And she said, I took it out of the car because I went on my road trip and I wanted you to have it there at the house this weekend in case you wanted to go swim. Now, I never go swim on the weekends. But see, Emily did this on purpose to be kind. <laughs> and that's a, that's a little bit of a Zen thing there. Uh, uh, you don't... <clears throat> you don't... Uh, everybody's trying to do their best. Even the guy that's out there trying to kill people <laughs> is trying to do his best for some reason. And uh, we're all dealing with different problems. And a lot of times it's a misunderstanding. So Emily, even without me asking, offered to drive halfway across town to meet me and give me my swim bag. And uh, I said no. Um, it's because I actually keep the swim stuff the wet stuff on top of the Nissan Xterra in the rooftop box. And she did not, for some miracle of God, uh, did not decide to empty that out for whatever reason. And then, uh, so the swim bag only had, it had like swim shampoo and like a combo lock and like, you know, stuff like that in it. I can get by without that. I can just put my stuff by the side of the pool and glare at anybody that's uh, looking at my stuff. But anyway... When you cannot find your stuff because you've put it somewhere or somebody else has put it somewhere, you are not alone in this battle. That is, a majority of being an age grouper triathlete is, and also let's say you're even a pro, if you're traveling or training different places, is the biggest obstacle is getting going, you know? All you got to do to be a good swimmer is get to the freaking pool and get in the water. Well, there's so many obstacles when you try to get to the pool of uh, things happening. So... Part two of the uh, crap of getting in the pool tonight. I go to the front desk and there's signs all over the front desk of the gym that say, sorry about the pool and that it's so cold, the heater's broken and it'll be uh, fixed sometime tomorrow afternoon. And I was like, hmm, how cold is it? She goes, it's pretty cold. And I said, yeah, but how cold is it? And because uh, I saw some cold crap, you know. I swam uh, Alcatraz and uh, Tahoe and I don't know, some other stuff. And I've been surfing in 55 degree water. <laughs> and I know that I can sustain 68 degrees for almost an hour with no wetsuit, no nothing. And uh, before I start going so numb that it starts to uh, like be debilitating, like give me wonder if I'm getting nerve damage or something. And uh, she said, oh, I think it's low 70s, mid 70s. And I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a try. So I get to the pool. And I dip my toe in and I'm like, holy crap, dude. That's pretty freaking cold. That is high 60s, low 70s, somewhere in there. It's hard to tell. And uh, uh, two other guys get there. One of them has like no body fat whatsoever. And he jumps in and tries swimming for a while. And he goes, forget this. Another guy jumps in and swam around for a little bit. And he goes, forget this. But I'm like, those are young guys. And I'm old and cranky. And I'm not going to put up with stuff. I drove all the way across town. I've already gotten into an argument with my wife about wanting to swim. I'm not turning around now. I'm going to get in the pool and I'm going to swim. There's a my, my theory on why older people do the long stuff is it's a break from reality. You know, young people, you know, it's like uh, they don't want to do the long stuff because they're like, why would I want to be out in the woods all by myself running 100 miles? And uh, because there's nobody around and it sucks. And the older person is like, I want to go out and run in the woods all by myself because it sucks and there's nobody around <laughs> to tell me what to do. So I'm like, I'm going to get in and try the swimming thing. And um, 
I started swimming and it, it kind of scared me at first. I thought I might not be able to take it, but then after a while, after about 10 minutes, I was like, hey, I'm taking this pretty good. I don't think I'm going to have many problems. And then um, uh, at the very, very end of an hour, I felt like uh, half of my lower lip, my right half of my lower lip was starting to go numb, like in a bad way, you know, like things were turning off. And I was like, okay, that's cool. That's better than my hands or, you know, something else going numb. So I'm good. And then, um, let me describe to you a really nice workout. Uh, swim an hour or however long is long for you. Longish, you know, like a longish swim and, uh, go very, very, uh, very easy for the first couple of minutes and then kind of warm up and then work on a nice, even cadence that's as high a cadence and as strong a pull as what feels easy to moderate and focus on your breathing. If you start huffing for air, that's too hard and you're just cruising along and trying to keep it consistent and you dabble in and out of maybe, maybe that's just going a little bit too hard and then try not to get attached to the speed that you're going. You'll find that if you're like, maybe this is a little bit too hard, See, my, re- my automatic instinct is, well, what am I going to do to keep going this fast? I got to keep going this fast. What am I going to do? I got to, man, I got to tough it out. And that's the dumb response. The uh, smart response is, well, I'll back off just a little bit and kind of regroup. And then, uh, so I've learned to do that in the past uh, few years. Start back, you know, back off instead of trying harder, <laughs> which is the problem in the first place. Uh, trying too hard. Uh, back off and actually you'll uh, be able to uh, go uh, farther faster. And so basically an hour of dabbling with uh, what is just a right sustainable pace uh, that feels just about right. And it's fun uh, because it's kind of it's like Zen flow. It's kind of like uh, trying to be at just the right spot, just where it hums. It's just right. We had this sailboat growing up. It was a 25-footer, and it had a keel that would drop down. I forgot what the exact what the, uh, the terminology, the sailing terminology is for that kind of keel, but you could crank it up, and it weighed like 2,000 pounds. And um, when you get going, you lower the keel for stability, so the boat won't tip over in, in higher winds. And once you start going fast enough, the cable that is on the tip of the keel. Um, you know, that you use this giant crank to uh, crank the keel up and down, uh, that cable would set up a hum in the water once you get going up to a nice enough speed. And it would just, this real gentle, beautiful humming sound. And I remember when it would happen, my dad would tell my my brother and I, my mom, you know, hear that hum? That means we're we're at top speed. That's really, really nice. And, uh, And when you're swimming at just the right pace, uh, with a nice turnover, you're not straining for air. Everything's clicking over really, really good. Um, your body almost sets up like this hum, and it's really, really cool. And then what you can do is, as you're getting towards the end of the workout, the last few minutes, kick it into overdrive and do kind of like 10k race pace, like as if you were running, um, and let the muscles kind of burn and fatigue a little bit, and then that's it. So what you've gotten is a whole lot of practice at uh, trying to zone in on exactly the right pace and breathing and cadence and that smooths out your swim stroke and a nice smooth swim stroke is kind of, it's the exact same thing as you know when you see somebody cycling that's a poor cyclist 
they're not even a cyclist. They're just somebody that's riding their bike down the boulevard and they're pedaling squares is what you say. Cause they're jerk, herky jerky pedaling instead of nice and smooth. And, um, well, the same thing's happening when you swim. If you don't swim a lot, um, at the right cadence and paces and with smoothness, uh, you're kind of swimming like blocks, you're swimming squares and it's really inefficient. So you can imagine that if you swim a lot, you start smoothing it out. Well, it takes a lot at a nice clip where it's just set up a nice hum. And then that uh, really helps out your swim stroke. And then at the very end, you do a little bit of overdrive and that makes you a little bit sore and you, you overdid it just a little bit, just the tiniest bit, and that'll make you stronger and faster for next time. And uh, a little bit on volume, um, uh, Chris Haig was and I were talking about this. Uh, if you want to get really good at triathlon, figure out the average distances that people train for your. Um, and I think it's better than time that you do distances that people train to be fast at your event. So, like for Olympic, you know, or for half Ironmans. And I can tell you off the top of my head, I know what they are for uh, Ironman because I'm always thinking about trying to qualify for Kona and the uh, numbers are a bit scary. You're talking uh, 12,000 to 14,000 yards swimming a week (laughs) and then um, I'll do the running next even though that's last because uh, the cycling is such a scary number. Running is 45 to 50 miles a week. kind of depends. And uh, both of those numbers I hit in training on a regular basis. Uh, peak, these are peak training weeks, right? Um, but the cycling, 250 miles a week on the bike. And now you're training, you do all of these, during, you work up to all these in your uh, triathlon training, and now you're talking about this is what people do to qualify for Kona. And this is why you realize so few people qualify for Kona, and so few people with full-time jobs and kids qualify for Kona, that uh, it's really um, a rarity <laughs> and very difficult to do. You can shorten the training on the bike, you know, a little bit by trying to do more intervals, stuff like that. Um, A lot of people try to do that because that's a lot of time on the bike. Okay, and I guess uh, let's talk about maple syrup. So last episode, I started using maple syrup, and I wanted to. uh, We may this may take a couple entries into the training log to describe it all. Uh, Last weekend, I did a mega training block on maple syrup. And I, uh, I had incredible results where day one, I did over five hours and day two, I did five hours and even a little bit more. And day two, I actually did farther and faster than I did day one. And day one was five hours. (laughs) And it's like, holy crap to do big days back to back and to go slightly faster on day two, um, it's a really good indicator that what you're doing is working and uh, a lot of it, most of it has to do with really good training fuel and hydration and recovery. So I want to talk about that right now. So this all got started uh, listening to Endurance Planets episode with um, Tawny 
uh, hosting, and I forgot her name, the lady from Osmo Nutrition, O-S-M-O. And they're talking about hydration and fuel. And um, I really, really liked this episode because there's a lot of stuff where people go, well, you got to be intuitive, you know, with how much water you drink, stuff like that. And you know what? Um, a lot of us are really screwed up in the head of, of what's correct. Or we get used, we get used to feeling one way, and this happens a lot, what's correct, and then you change environments. Like you go from cooler weather to a heat wave, and you're like, you're in such the habit that your your intuitiveness is bullshit, and it ain't gonna work, and you're gonna freaking die. <laughs> so you can't be intuitive. You have to actually know um, and measure and be smart. And once I started doing that kind of stuff, that's when my training actually uh, improved by a ton. So, um, this interview with, with her was very scientific and um, very calculated and very informative. I liked it a lot, a whole lot of science in it. And she uh, mentioned offhandedly that if you did liquid fuel, do maple syrup, that it's mostly glucose. And glucose is, um, uh, and I already knew this, glucose is very readily absorbed by the body. Um, and that... Uh, the fructose that remains in it somehow, for some reason, is bound to the um, bound to the glucose in a way that it doesn't bother your stomach. And um, the thing that really caught my attention was she said, you know, maltodextrin's fine and all that other stuff, but when you start going long, that'll eventually sit in your gut and sit there and hurt later on as it draws in water in your uh, small intestine. And that's actually exactly what happened to me at last uh, Ironman Texas. Is starting about a third of the way through the run, my intestines started to just hurt. And she said that's the water pressure of it. That's the pressure of it trying to draw water in to continue digesting the maltodextrin, which hasn't digested yet. And maple syrup doesn't do that, she said. Now I haven't tested it, you know, full on, you know, seven hours, but. I can tell you that when I was using maple syrup uh, uh, on my training days that um, when I finished, I felt um, I was really paying attention to later, like immediately afterwards and later in the day, I felt my, my guts just felt clean, like, like um, no, no, you know, no like sludge, no stomach pains, no nothing, you know, just nice and clean and like air, just... Um, and light and um, that's that's a really good indicator right there and um, I got to run back in the house we're back we're back home and I'll pick up with um, uh, the ratios that I mixed it uh, the maple syrup and the um, where I found it a little bit about the sourcing of it and the uh, green tea powder and sea salt that I added to it, which ended up working really, really nicely. And also about uh, just hydration for recovery in general. All right, so I'll be back. Out, oh, dang. All right. I thought I'd record a little bit of what it's like to be in the hole and to be overtrained just a little bit, hopefully. And uh, basically, what happens is you uh, you're tired. You're in such the habit of working out, and you get a little bit of exercise addiction, probably, 
that you, um, you know, you still go because it's just a habit, you know, so you start going and then you, yeah, you're tired and then you try to, um, get going and you're lacking the gusto and, and it takes extra caffeine and extra carbs to have the energy that what you of what you usually have and uh, you crave kind of extra naps <laughs> and that's exactly where I'm at right now and last week was a pretty big week 20 well, 20 uh, plus hour week I think so I mean, everything's relative you know I have times where I don't train anywhere near this much and then if I increase the volume to 12 hours <laughs> kind of implode a little bit um, and on the note of exercise addiction like you know I <clears throat> I we a lot of us have exercise addiction that do this stuff um, I theorize that mine comes from when I was in high school the latter years of high school and in college I smoked about half a pack of cigarettes a day at least a pack on weekends a day and the, uh, that really messes up your, your brain function and the needing to do something all the time uh, with your hands and with your body. And uh, also drank a bunch and other stuff and um, hung out with like crazy dudes. So my, uh, my stimulation level to like go and need to do something is pretty high. And the, uh, over time, I figured out that I could replace the uh, cigarettes and crap like that with uh, exercise, which is a much healthier addiction. And it's hard to say whether or not, you know, the cigarette stuff uh, transform me into somebody that needs that all the time because the smokers need to do something with their hands. You can tell. It's such a, such a strong habit where they really um, messed up their brains. <laughs> we messed up our brains with that. It's, um, it's really interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, you got Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. People go in there and they freaking smoke like crazy because they need to do something with themselves because their habit of drinking, uh, you know, now that they're not doing that, they got to do something else with themselves. But anyway, that's a long tangent. But the uh, let's talk about uh, maple syrup because I'm really enjoying it. And... I'm going in slow motion right now, kind of like syrup. So the maple syrup thing, what's really interesting is it's not sticky. There's a, there's quite a few things about it that I like. It's not sticky. Um, it's the tiniest bit sticky, but not like you would think, and not like Gatorade, stuff like that where it dries, whatever. It's, it's runny. And also, it seems like it can be stored at room temperature and get hot and stuff like that, and it won't go bad. It's got some natural preservatives in it or something that don't allow it to, uh, yeah, go bad. Because I'll make a Malto and Gatorade, you know, gel thing, my own. And if it's left out, you know, after a couple of days, it's uh, it's pretty nasty. And um, so Maple Life has a really, Maple Life, Maple Syrup has a really good shelf life. And let's see, when you mix it, say you want to... Um, make it thinner, you know, you want to mix it with water or something like that to dilute a drink, then uh, it mixes really, really, really well. <clears throat> you don't have to put it into a blender to mix it with anything. 
that's really, really nice too. And let's see, what else is a good attribute about it? Um, it comes from old growth forests uh, that supposedly, they say, don't require any fertilizer or anything like that. And uh, so it's a real, it's a really nice environmentally friendly product as far as I can tell. It's really cool. And um, what I found is a good mix of fuel is I add a little bit of sea salt to it uh, for your electrolyte. And it's also, I think it's got a trace of potassium and a lot of magnesium and stuff. And there's different grades. There's A, B, maybe C grade. You know, that's like how dark it is. It's how much other stuff it's got in it. Somebody almost rear-ended me. I need to calm down with their driving. And the, um, so it's got other stuff in it. Little trace, little minerals, stuff like that. Which is good for your electrolytes and vitamins and such. Probably iron and stuff like that in it. Strange fact, you have enough iron in your body to make a nail, <laughs> hopefully. And also, um, the uh, what I found a cool trick is the Osmo lady, which some, at some point I'll get her name right, uh, said, you know, to hydrate properly, your water doesn't work unless it's got a little bit, it works a whole lot better. If it's got a little bit of carbs, just a tiny you know amount of carbs and electrolyte in it. So what I did last weekend that worked so well is I made my water bottles on the bike and on the run. Um, I squirted a little bit of my uh, fuel bottle. right? So I'd make a concentrate fuel bottle of, well, I was just freaking maple syrup, right? With sea salt and uh, green tea powder, matcha powder, which is caffeine and good for, and also good for you. And um, I'd make a concentrate bottle of that, about 300 calories per hour, and um, in one bottle, and went on a long bike ride with that. Well, while I'm riding along, and I got the arrow bottle between my arms, the BTA between the arms bottle, um, I would um, every time that I would refill that bottle in front of me, I refill it while I'm riding you know, or when I stopped at the post office that's got a water fountain outside, I would um, squirt a little bit of my fuel bottle, my concentrate fuel bottle, into the arrow bottle, the empty water bottle that I'm about to drink. And then as I fill the water bottle with water, it's mixing the, uh, the fuel concentrate that I put in there. And we're talking like a tablespoon or so. Of, of that in there with the water and now all of a sudden I've got water that's got a little bit of carbs and a little bit of electrolyte in it and that hydrates you a whole lot better and I think and I did that repeatedly you know on the bike ride and on my long runs and I think that that was um, critical to staying hydrated and happy all weekend long I weighed myself like I should every day and um, I only went down like a pound or two over the period of the workouts. And then I would um, eat and drink more and get my weight right back up to where it was supposed to be. And uh, that's really good uh, Ultraman style training, you know, because you got to do multiple day things. So you got to learn to stay hydrated. And that's what I was doing. I was practicing staying hydrated with this. And um, the fact that the fuel that I was using 
uh, for my working out, I could also use on the fly to create water that was going to hydrate me better was a really, really smart trick. Okay, so let's talk for, just for a second about matcha powder. I order, order it off of Amazon, and I think it's called Kiss Me Organics. And um, do like half a spoonful is like a strong cup of green tea. It's just powder. I use culinary grade. There's ceremonial grade, which is more expensive and probably tastes a little bit better. It's fancier. But culinary grade works great. And green tea has uh, some really nice properties to it. Um, it gives you caffeine without lots of jitters and then uh, like coffee does. And it's um, antimicrobial. So it'll keep your bottles a little bit cleaner. And uh, also um, people that drink green tea have uh, fewer cavities, studies have shown because it, I think it has a tr uh, some traces of fluoride in it as well. So the antimicrobial and the fluoride uh, keep your teeth cleaner from getting cavities. And uh, green tea has, it's the tea leaf ground up. So it's got fiber in it, which is actually good for you. And it's uh, green. So it's got uh, chlorophyll in it, which is good for you as well. Like a whole, you know, coffee's fine, uh, good stuff. Uh, for you, but coffee's you know acidic and um, eats up your teeth a little bit, stains your teeth, and this does the opposite, and it gives you a more even dose of caffeine. So I'll make a water bottle, uh, fill it about a third to probably not a half, but whatever maple syrup. That's like a three and a half hour water bottle right there, and um, put in uh, half a uh, about two thirds of a spoonful of matcha powder. And that's a lot, but I don't know. It kind of depends on you. And then um, like six grams of uh, sea salt and uh, put it in there, add a little bit of water, shake it up real good, and then uh, add, then fill it up with water all the way to the top and shake it some more. And I've got a three, three and a half hour water bottle right there. It's pretty sweet, man. Really good. And I've also noticed that when you, um, you haven't uh, drank from it, in a little while and you drink from it again tastes good <laughs> you're like man that was really nice instead of like oh yeah more orange or you know whatever or Bleh, you know i'm tired of this you're like man that tastes good so um anyway i'm still in exploring like how much it uh trying to find it for how much it costs and stuff like that there's a um there's a group that's put together uh maple syrup from vermont uh, for athlete, athletes, you know, and like gel packs and stuff like that. And they're called, I believe they're called untapped and, uh, you ought to check them out. And I got to go into W to the ERK and eat some eggs and, uh, some carbs and uh, try to get some energy back and consider which, uh, I need to take a day off. Obviously I think y'all can tell. All right. Out thing. All right. Just real quick, a couple of things. First off, I was looking at the um, the Ultra Baby course, and it's the same distance as Ultraman, and uh, I used the Strava planner, uh, route planner, to come up with uh, the route, uh, because the Garmin one doesn't tell you the elevation gain. At Garmin Connect, you can build a route, and I don't know about Moves Count, the Sunto one. Uh, that one has a beautiful route maker, by the way, the Sunto Moves Count one, and uh but Garmin Connect does not summarize elevation gain. The thing that matters the most <laughs> right after distance is how far up am I going. But anyway, the Strava one does. 
And so I was playing around with that, learning something new. And my uh, day two bike route has 5,000 and 400 and something uh, feet of elevation gain. And I compared that to uh, Ultraman. And I was like, oh, that's a lot, you know? And I compared that to Ultraman Hawaii. Ultraman Hawaii has 8,000 and such uh, elevation gain. So another 3,000 on top of mine. But although that's spread over like a really long ways, that's 172 miles. So it would be noticeable, but not terribly noticeable. And, um, and you know what? I had a feeling of relief. I was like, okay, I can, one, I get to, I'm like, the route I've got, I can keep, I like the route. And I'm like, okay, the route, even though it's hilly, I was worried it was just like too hilly. And then I go, nope, the route I've got is good because even though it's hilly, it's not as hilly as the real Ultraman. And that, um, uh, so I would have to actually find a different route with even more hills, not less hills, fewer hills, but more hills <laughs> to be more like Ultraman. And then I'm like, um, it's plenty hilly for me. And the, uh, and then I also thought my mindset while I'm actually, uh, riding would be, you know, when it starts to suck after God, who knows how many miles, 60 miles, a hundred miles, 150 miles, you know, when I want to just die, I'd rather just die, just ride my bike into a ditch instead of keep going <laughs> you know you're done mentally when you start hoping something goes wrong so you can quit anyway um please god let me have a flat tire so i have a reason to quit please god and the uh uh in my mind i was like oh i'll have a cool mantra in my mind at least this is not as hard as ultraman hawaii so there was that and also, and both routes that I picked out, I have an alternate route. I actually ended up having the exact same elevation. And then um, there was something else. Oh, um, earlier I was recording, you know, and it sounded all dopey because I was tired and whatever. I caught a nap over lunch for about half an hour, and I feel way better. And it just goes to show the uh, power of... I'm not, I'm not going to say the power of napping. The power of not getting enough sleep or getting enough rest, what it does to you. And um, all this morning and through lunch, I was craving just crap food. Because your body's like, I need energy. I don't care. In fact, I need crap energy. Like, like uh, crap fuel. Cheap fuel to give me just crazy energy to overpower this uh, sleepiness that's killing me. And uh, so you start craving just junk food and everything. And uh, it's, from, it's from stress and not getting enough sleep. And uh, I caught a nap at lunch. And uh, this whole afternoon, I've just felt fine. I've been able to focus. And I'm eating healthy. I just ate, I just ate a banana. And, um, yeah, it's really, really good. And I'm not as anywhere near as hungry. And it just goes to show uh, people that are sleep-deprived actually overeat. Um, which is really interesting. And a funny thing is if you're asleep, you can't eat. <laughs> That's one way to cut back on calories. Anyway, I thought I'd give you the elevation update. Day one of Ultraman, uh, the real one in Hawaii, they climbed the side of a volcano. Over 90 miles, they go 7,600 feet. 7,600 feet. <laughs> Up. <laughs> Just nuts. 
Anyway, we don't have any volcanoes where I live, thank God. So I don't know. Um, oh, that'd be kind of cool to have one. It'd be interesting. And uh, so I don't. Uh, day one of our ultra baby is going to be a hell of a lot more mellow than that. But anyway, that's it. Bang. All right, leaving the pool, heading to W to the ERK. Get some work done. Uh, really interesting stuff. I uh, sat around and didn't do too much and waited for my systems to come back online because I was so uh, tired and it's hard to do. And But if you're patient, you can tell everything starts clicking again. And I was on uh, Zwift, which is a video game that you play on the trainer on the bike. I highly recommend it. Z-W-I-F-T. It took me a while to warm up to it and then eventually now it's, it's a habit and I like it a lot. And uh, there's this uh, big hill climb on it. And this other guy, you play, you're playing with other people around the world. And this other guy uh, was uh, drafting off of me, drafting off me for like 10 minutes. And then we got to the end with the big hill climb. And he uh, tried, to, tried to accelerate and take the win at the top of the hill. And I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> I was putting out like 400 and some watts going, nah, dude. And I could tell I got to the top and that was the end. I went extra at the end. I was like, man, I am energized. This is great. And then I swam this morning and uh, <coughs> felt like doing intervals. It takes a lot of years of training, I think. Um, if you're kind of training on your own and learning this stuff, even if you have a coach telling you what to do for you, like it, it takes a long time for you to learn on your own actually what makes you, um, you know, when you're tired and when you should do intervals and when you shouldn't and such. And I'm starting to throw in intervals that are low cadence on the swim, bike and run, uh, and just pure power because I know that during the ultra baby, um, as I, as I get further and further into it, my cadence is going to slow down because I'm going to be tired and I need to be able to put out power at a low cadence. And so I'm working on that. And I think that's about it. Yeah, mostly just uh, being patient with uh, energy and uh, being really attentive to, uh, you know, only doing hard stuff when you feel uh, like like you're kind of like cracked out a little bit. That's when you do the hard stuff, when you're like really excited and amped. And then when you don't feel good, don't. And also, I got an IKEA standing desk uh, delivered to work yesterday afternoon and some coworkers and I uh, put it together. And it's still, I still don't have my computer on it or anything like that, but it's got the electronic toggle switch on it that raises and lowers the entire desk, which is pretty cool. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to using that, being on my feet a little bit more. And there was literally a squirrel moment. A squirrel just ran out in the street and then ran back again. I almost had to slam on my brakes. Anyway, that's it for now. Everything's looking good. Talk to y'all later out. Bang. All right, I'm out running. I got the phone in a Ziploc, so excuse the clicky-clicky of the plastic touching the mic. But anyway, I'm out on a longer run, two-hour run. I just interviewed Bruckner Chase, which was so inspirational. <laughs> Don't become your own worst enemy. That's so good. I need that. I think we all need that. I'm out on a country road. I biked 80 point something miles this morning. Just going easy.
the last, oh, the 80s kind of new, you know, so I usually do 70 to 75, so I'm tacking on five more miles, three hours and 48 minutes, I think, 21.2 miles per hour riding in the fog for the first half with Daniel, guy is a machine. We ride side by side on these quiet country roads out in the middle of nowhere. You hear a car coming forever. And <clears throat> saw a dead bobcat. Got hit yesterday. Sad. But I still stopped and took a picture of it. And sent it to Kai and Emily. So they could see with my foot next to it how big this thing is and the amazing wildlife we have around here. So dead bobcat bad, very sad, quite an amazing creature. But I'm trying to make something out of it. The beautiful spots all on its underside. Anyway, big too. The tail is longer than I thought it was. The tail is probably like six, seven inches long. In my mind, they're always like a couple inches. But I wanted to get in this little recording. I tried a. Uh, Scratch, which is a cousin of Osmo, in my water bottles, and it didn't work today. Backed up in my stomach, so that's no good. Went back to plain water and then my maple syrup fuel, and that started working great. Even power throughout. And actually, I feel really good. Somebody suggested for my uh, plantar fasciitis in my left foot. What's it called? Active release therapy. What you do is you press down on the muscle and the tendon upstream from the problem area and then you flex the problem area and that makes the muscle work back and forth under pressure, under a pinpoint like where you're pressing with your thumb. This is one way to do it. And man, it worked. Thank you, I forgot your name. Because I'm running. <laughs> but, my heel feels pretty dang good. And, my heart rate strap is giving out. It's reading really high, 200 beats per minute. While I'm sitting here jogging and talking. So we know that ain't right. <sighs> But another thing, scaling back the effort just a tad. It allows you to feel so much better and then get in the volume. So we're looking for almost six hours today. If I run two hours, okay. 
and I always talk about thresholds. You step over a threshold and then you got a new world. And you push the threshold of volume up correctly, you'll notice that your speed goes up with it. Your easy speed. And I can feel that with the slight increase of volume, I actually feel good. Like it's not a problem yet. <laughs> Today's Saturday, we still have tomorrow. And I also want to mention the endurance athlete's secret weapon is the potato, the baked potato. Man, you get in one of those every day. really do load you up so um baked potato if it's a bigger one five minutes four to five minutes in the microwave poke it clean almost clean through with a knife four or five times or else it'll explode eat the skin to slow down the starch Add some fat to it to slow it down a little bit too. So I do guacamole and sriracha sauce and sea salt and maybe pepper. Or cheese maybe, if you like. And supposedly you do the same thing with sweet potato, but I like just a regular potato. And potatoes really don't taste like anything. You can add all kinds of stuff. Worcestershire, barbecue, sauce. But anyway, I thought I'd give an update. Almost a six hour training day. Still got a, a lot of running left. Oh, Kai was biking with me at first and we were going over hand signals for the run portion of the Ultra Baby. See, the whole key <laughs> to this crazy long stuff, you want to make it so that even if you don't race on race day, let's say something happened, like your bike never shows up at the race off the plane or something. You've st you're still a better person or improved your life somehow on the way there. You know, the race is just the icing on the cake. It's just the celebration. So these father-son bonding moments, working on hand signals, are priceless, right? What if we don't use them for this race, we use them for another race? What if I don't make it to the run, you know? I wreck on the bike. Ultra baby's over. We've still worked on hand signals we can use on down the road. Imagine me in my deathbed when I'm 80. <laughs> and he's 50, and we're doing hand signals for each other. So, like, okay, water, well, is everything okay? It's just thumbs up, back, if he asks. I told him he needs to ask me every once in a while. And I also said, don't ask me for stuff that you don't have. Because that's just mean, and I'll get mad. And by day three, I won't think a lot of things are funny anymore. Just warning you. <laughs> it's like, okay.
So, thumbs up. So everything's fine. But yes, everything is everything good? Thumbs up is yes. One finger up is water. Two fingers up is ice water. Middle finger, you gotta be kicking out of that. It's just ice. Which, it'll almost always be ice. And then, uh, ring finger. That's a nine inch nail song, by the way. It's really good. Ring finger is salt. Pinky is fuel. Thumbs down is things aren't going well. Or no. No, wait. Shake the head is no. Which is really hard while running. Try to run and then shake your head left and right. Like, no. It's kind of funny. This pump is heck yeah. What happens is on the run, you don't feel good. You don't feel like talking. You can do hand signals and you can do hand signals from way far away. And also while throwing up <laughs> or laying on the ground. I dragged him out of the house. We got internet now and TV. So sitting there watching TV. But the GoPro channel on the Roku and probably other things, holy cow, that's really cool. It gets you motivated to go out and do stuff. You want to inspire your kids, tell them to put it on the GoPro channel and then go get on their bike. All right, that's it. I gotta run. <laughs> Alright, out, babe. Alright, we need to go ahead and wrap up this show. Whew, that was the biggest weekend of training I think I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> Two days back to back, six hours. And what I notice is on day two, um, I was faster than day one. And this is the second weekend in a row where that's happened, where day two is faster than day one, even though they're both the same size. And on day two, actually adding a little bit more uh, volume, a little bit more distance, a little bit more time, you know, whatever. And um, it has everything to do with paying attention to um, hydration and uh, keeping the pace uh, mellow. And I gotta tell you, it's really, really rewarding to uh, be on day two and find that you're um, cruising along just as you just as good as you were the day before and that you're just this, the tiniest bit faster and in the tiniest bit uh, better mood and um, 80 let's see uh, Saturday I did 80 miles on the bike and Sunday I did 85 in the same amount of time well, just a little bit longer. And um, then on uh, for running, I, uh, my average pace on the run was probably about 15 seconds to uh, 30 seconds per mile faster on uh, day two. Uh, the, the day two, uh, the Sunday bike ride, I got off the bike 
and was in a fantastic mood. Um, was really bouncing off the walls and happy. And then we went and ran errands together, uh, getting Kai's stuff, uh, clothes for, uh, we're going to John Hirsch's and Christine Lynch's uh, wedding up in Boston pretty soon. And um, went by the bike shop, went by the running store, uh, you know, like different things. And I wasn't uh, extremely grumpy, you know, about going and running errands. That's a really good sign of, of uh, good hydration and fueling during a workout. And it just became just really nice just uh, going out there and finding the volume and the distance. And actually, I also found myself... Uh, looking forward to the workout instead of not looking forward to it and starting a little bit earlier both days because I was, uh, you know, I had my crap together. I'm like, all right, let's go, you know, might as well go ahead and uh, get it over now and um, I have a little bit more time later if I uh, finish early or maybe I'll be able to get in a little bit more distance if I uh, start now and um, that's, that's different and um a lot of it has to do with um, careful volume, just going easy and just adding it in. Does um, There's a saying about a rocket uses 99% of its energy. <laughs> Who knows if that's actually true. But correcting course, left, right, left, right. I wouldn't say it's 99%. But, uh, but oh, it spends 99% of its time going the wrong way. That's definitely true, you know, and it's got to... It never goes totally, totally straight. But what happens is, what I've noticed is when you go long and easy, it gives you time to learn constant course corrections. And if you if you're going easy enough, those course the, going the wrong way, let's say with fueling or with uh, fueling or hydration are probably the biggest ones. Uh, you you're your uh, errors aren't catastrophic, right? Um, because you're not going that hard, you can go, oh, and this was, this was my case totally. My case is I overfuel. And so I was like, oh, you know, my stomach's not feeling good. I'm just cruising along just easy. So let's uh, bring down the fuel a little bit and uh, just drink water instead, right? No penalty because I'm just going easy. And... Uh, it works, you know, and time, when you do it over and over and over and over again, you learn each time you actually learn a little bit. And so I got, that's, that's why I'm saying, uh, the long, the long workouts repeated, you know, as close together as you can get them day after day or every few days apart. Um, you can take those, those course corrections and go, okay, um, if I'm feeling, basically it's this, if I, if I feel like A, I should do B. <laughs> now, A is really complicated. Your stomach can hurt, uh, you could feel, uh, you know, thirsty, um, or you feel fine, but you feel thirsty. Like, there's all kinds of combinations of stuff, or you're going uphill, or you're going downhill, and there's just a million combinations of, um, of A, you know, I feel like this or this is happening, and then um, the, uh, and then you have to try different combinations of B, and then you have to remember them. But eventually, in the end, what happens is 
is uh, you get graceful uh, with your responses and you don't waste time doing the wrong thing. And because you're doing the right thing more frequently, then doing the right thing makes you faster, stronger, more resilient so that the next time uh, when you do make a slight error, it doesn't bother you so much, you know. A person that runs a six-minute mile that doesn't, as an easy pace, well, probably not, probably not hardly anybody, let's say a seven, eight-minute mile as an easy pace, doesn't struggle with a little bit of a running error in a marathon. They're still going to finish fast and, uh, and well. And the better athlete you become because of training, good training, uh, little errors don't uh, bother you so much. So anyway, uh, I think that's about it for this uh, biggest training uh, load. I really wish that I was training like this uh, sooner. We've got to leave town um, two weeks before the Ultra Baby, and uh, that's bad planning, but there's nothing I can do about it. That's life. You know, there was other times like this week where I had to miss a workout or whatever because Kai needed help with his uh, math homework or, you know, it's like, oh, well, got to do that, you know, and the, um, the other thing is I got to find out today in the news, the dam, it's an earthen dam, uh, the dam for the lake uh, that I want to do the swim in, they found uh, there's cracks appearing in it. And then I thought, hmm, i got to keep my eye on that. And then my buddy Chris posted on Facebook. Emily saw it because I don't like going to Facebook. Emily saw it uh, that they're lowering the water level at the lake. And I'm like, ooh, what's that about? So I need to um, stay on top of that. And worst case scenario, we got to do the swim in a pool, which I am not happy about whatsoever. I really want to do it open water, but I guess we'll see. We'll have to see. Um, that's the only lake available really to do it in. But anyway, we'll get it done. Not that worried about it. All right. Uh, everybody, uh, stay safe out there. And, uh, if you found any of the training tips, um, on this episode helpful, especially, uh, maple syrup, for sure work, works really well for me. That's another thing I wanted to mention. The whole time I'm riding along and, and running and I'm you know doing so much better than before, I think a lot of it has to do with um, maple syrup has a higher error tolerance. I think I might have mentioned that before. If I overfuel a little bit with maple syrup, um, it's not the end of the world. It... Uh, you know, my stomach kind of hurts just a little bit and I just drink water for a while and then it goes away. It's not like getting sick and sick and sick. Oh, and then also, um, I felt pretty tired this morning and I realized that I didn't weigh myself last night before I went to bed. So then I didn't drink as much water as I should. I lost, uh, three, four pounds, uh, overnight since the middle of the day yesterday after my bike ride. So after my run, I don't know, you know, my run burned up a lot of water and, uh, that's the other tip is big, uh, big training days, weigh yourself to stay on top of your hydration. I guess you could get good at it and know over time I'm still learning and 
that uh, was a good lesson. So I woke up this morning feeling kind of off, you know, kind of bleh. So I ate something and then went back to bed. I weighed myself and I was like, oh, that's uh, a little low. <laughs> and uh, just by a few pounds. But uh, so uh, also sprinkling salt and on my food and on my water all weekend and uh, that really helped a lot that was nice and yeah anyway that makes your water sticky makes it want to stick with you anyway um oh and then i've got the standing desk so we've got that going on but the um if if you ever find uh you want to help support zentry head on over to zentriathlon.com and uh, help support the show on the left-hand side if you found any of these training tips helpful. And, uh, yeah, support the show. But uh, I also want to say there's a, I have a feeling today um, that I feel really fulfilled and content. And it's because figuring out nutrition for long course and long-distance uh, training has always kind of eluded me and I always felt like um, I should be uh, I should have better results and I'm like I wonder if if uh, you know I've got things kind of solved or improved never have everything solved but I've got things improved where I can actually really go out and enjoy myself and enjoy myself and not really uh, fret and fuss over an unknown and that's very uh, relaxing actually very, very relaxing, and um, I figure by the time of, uh, you know, Ironman Canada next summer, that a whole bunch of us are doing, uh, my friends and I, that um, I'll be able to uh, really get in some great training and um, building up to it, be able to get in the long days and, and whatever, and actually get that done. And um, big props to Emily. Um, I asked her before I started training for all this stuff. I said, please be supportive of me and, and uh, don't uh, make me battle for the time to do this. It'll be over and then we'll spend lots of time doing family stuff and, and all that. And Emily has been, and Kai, has been, uh, have been just amazing with uh, letting me go three and a half hours, four hours for bike rides. <laughs> Um, also, uh, a repeatable course is huge. You know, I go and do the same bike course every time and I'll add just a little bit every time to increase the volume and the, um, you know, I'll add another loop on my run. This is these little cul-de-sac looking things or another little out and back on the bike and, um, for increasing volume, that's a really, really, really safe thing to do. Same course, so you got the same water stops, and you know what to uh, change and what to do um, safely. Because uh, once you get one distance solved, it's not that big of a deal to add just a tiniest, just the tiniest bit more. And I got to say, that's uh, huge with um, improving uh, fitness and distance is just tiny little, tiny, tiny little add-ins. Just add a little bit more and add a little bit more. And uh, that's how volume 
uh, easy volume can actually uh, improve you a lot. The whole thing of doing minimalist training and doing intervals and such, which is fantastic, there's a lot of risk in there of um, you know overdoing or underdoing it uh, and then trying to compensate. And if you're doing the um, just the volume and you just keep repeating, the, that's the whole consistency thing that you hear pros and pro coaches talk about. Uh, you just uh, consistent day in, day out, day in, day out, and just add another five minutes here and another five minutes there or another another hill here, you know. Um, that uh, that really, really helps. And uh, I've, I've got people that I ride with sometimes that are like, let's go ride something different. I'm like, nope. <laughs> We're riding the same thing. Because I want, I know where all the water stops are, and I just want to add just a little bit more time and increase the uh, the volume. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's it. Everybody, stay safe out there. Uh, work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down. Out. <laughs>